Welcome to episode 1680 of Effectively Wild, a Fangraphs baseball podcast brought to you by our Patreon supporters. I'm Meg Rowley of Fangraphs, and I am joined as always by Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer. Ben, how are you? Well, I just got my first Pfizer jab, so I'm feeling pretty good. Oh, that makes me so happy. That's great. Yeah. And you're and you're feeling all right? Yeah, so far. It oh literally just happened. <laughs> so if there <laughs> are side effects, they probably haven't had time to take effect. But I'll take whatever's coming to me because uh, it's worth it. Yeah, for sure. So you haven't sprouted wings or... <laughs> no, but like you, I found it to be a pretty uplifting activity. Yeah. I think. I'm, I'm not a churchgoer, but there were some similarities in this situation. It was sort of this hushed congregation. People were filing in to receive their offerings, seeking some sort of salvation. There was a sense of gratitude and shared purpose, and I felt good about it. I'm writing sort of a, a secular science high from the <laughs> whole experience. Yeah, it's, um, you know, we goof up a lot of stuff, but we we occasionally can come together and achieve pretty cool things. So it is, mm -hmm. a, it is a very nice moment after a very long and hard year. Here's a segue. Joe Musgrove achieved a pretty cool thing. <laughs> <laughs> On Saturday, Joe Musgrove pitched the first no-hitter in San Diego Padres history. And I caught the last couple innings, and it was a pretty good time. He looked great. He's looked great all year. He was sort of a, a popular breakout pick, but it was mm -hmm. one of those cases where, like, are we sure he's still eligible to be a breakout pick? Because right. he, he's already been a pretty good pitcher. But it was kind of a combination of maybe underperforming his peripherals last season and then leaving the Pirates. So any pitcher who leaves the Pirates is just automatically a breakout pick now. So he's had 15 scoreless innings to start this season, I think 31 scoreless consecutive innings dating back to last season. And he looked nasty even in the late innings, even as he was trying to hold it so that he didn't have to go to the bathroom. And uh, <laughs> as he was feeling fatigued and throwing a lot fewer fastballs, which I guess he's doing just in general these days, but he looked great and it's uh, quite an achievement for the franchise. Yeah, it's, um, you know, no hitters always have an element of of luck and um, they're, you know, they're good defensive plays that keep it moving. And and so it's I think we've maybe gone too far in uh, in the direction of thinking like that the that the luck undermines it somewhat that the perfect game is where it's at and no hitters are mm -hmm. a dime a dozen. And and I would submit that like, you know, maybe they're maybe that's true to some extent but when you're watching a franchise complete its first one and you can see the guys getting excited about it it's a really cool thing and you know we've talked about on the show how my my prior for Musgrove needed updating because my right. strongest memories of him are when he was with Houston and his performance was up and down then he had really dominant stretches he had less good stretches and then he he disappeared into the void that is 
Pittsburgh, and I just didn't watch very much of him over the years. And so I assume that he heard that and was like, well, let me show you what I'm up to, Meg. Mm -hmm. And so far, I got to say, I'm pretty impressed. (laughs) (laughs) I am too. Yeah, this was not a cheapie. Like, yeah, there were a a few defensive plays that helped him out, as there always are. But he was one hit by pitch away from the perfect game. Exactly. (laughs) He looked great. And I kind of wonder, like, he was sort of overshadowed by the fact that they traded for Blake Snell and you Darvish before they picked up Musgrove. And it's that it was just like a bonus that they got Musgrove. But he's looked so good that I wonder if he'll end up being one of the best two of the three that they acquired. And just like looking ahead to next year when Mike Clevenger is back and then you've got Darvish, Snell, Clevenger, Musgrove, and then whoever, I don't know, Gore or Lamette if he's healthy or Paddock or Morhone. It's just like a cornucopia of starting pitchers. So it's cool for the franchise, especially like, yeah, I mean, not every no-hitter is uh, amazing. It's not always a sterling pitching performance. And sometimes it just, you know, they blend together. But in this case, when it breaks a streak of, I think, 8,206 regular season games without a no-hitter, it just, it seems sort of symbolic. A, it was nice to have a San Diego native local kid be the first one, but also just like the fact that the Padres, in addition to their mediocrity over the years and their lack of star power, except for a couple guys really in their whole history, and their failure to win a World Series in 50-plus seasons now, the fact that in addition to all of that, They were also so late to getting a no-hitter and getting even a cycle, which like we care about cycles even less than we care about no-hitters. But it just seems sort of symbolic that like not until I think it was 2015 when Matt Kemp finally cycled for the Padres. Like at that point, they were the only team without a cycle, except for I think the Marlins, who haven't been around nearly as long and they have since cycled. So the fact that it took them forever to get a cycle and then it took them forever to get a no-hitter the only franchise remaining without one, it just seemed like part of the whole Padres-ness of just like, they're not very good, they're forgettable, they kind of blend into the background. And this team does not blend into the background, like even with Fernando Tatis on the shelf for hopefully not too much longer. But it's just such a good team and a fun team and an exciting team. And that just kind of seemed like it made it official. It's like, okay, these are not the old Padres who everyone just forgot about because they didn't win and they didn't have standout individual game performances Now they do all those things and they also win and they're great. So it it means more in this specific case. They're like, oh, Padres fans are going to hate this analogy. I don't like it either because they're yucky bugs. They're like cicadas. They're emerging. (laughs) But they will, I I think that they're, um, I think that they're, uh, lifespan as a good team is probably a little bit longer uh, than, than those gross bugs. They're just, they're really, that's really, they're very gross. So uh, in that respect, this is terrible. And I'm, I apologize to everyone in San Diego, but you're, you're, uh, you're a beautiful butterfly. You are emerging into your beautiful form. And, yes. uh, and in their you beautiful know, uniforms. Yeah, you're, you're, you're flapping your, you're flapping. A lot of butterflies do have uh, brown and yellow wings. See, that's mm-hmm. much better. I appreciate Perfect. this little live edit. It's really <laughs> useful, Ben. See, even editors, they need editors. <laughs> right. So there was also a little more history 
that was set this weekend where Tim LaCastro, Diamondbacks outfielder, set a major league record by stealing the 28th base of his career. He has not yet been caught, and we talked about this a little bit on the Diamondbacks preview episode, but he passed Tim Raines, who went 27 for 27 to start his career. LoCastro now has the most consecutive successful steal attempts to start a career. And there's actually a cool connection between LaCastro and Reigns. Several years ago, LaCastro was a minor leaguer in the Blue Jays system, and Tim Reigns was the Blue Jays' roving base running coach. So Reigns actually helped teach the kid who would one day break his record. And LaCastro, probably not a future Hall of Famer like Reigns. He's had kind of a, a under-the-radar but fun career. He's one of the fastest players in the majors. He's like at the top of the sprint speed leaderboard every year. He gets hit by a lot of pitches, and so it's this combination of getting plunked and then getting on base and being dangerous once he's there. And this is a cool accomplishment. It's obviously just related to the fact that he's super fast, but it's more than that, too. Like, clearly, he has the instincts. He has the knack for base stealing. Devin Fink wrote about this for Van Graffs, as you know, and Mm -hmm. he talked about how he picks his spots and doesn't really try to steal third very often. Maybe because he doesn't want to get caught, but maybe also because he can score from second on any hit. And he seems to pick his spots against catchers who are less likely to throw him out, but then probably everyone does that. Anyway, it's a fun thing when someone is really fast and also has the base stealing skills. Because I remember when we all were super excited about Billy Hamilton and how could anyone ever catch him because you just look at like, okay, pop times take this long. It takes X seconds for the ball to get there and it takes this long for the ball to get to home plate. And he is this fast, so how could they ever catch him? It seems impossible. And yet they did. Like, he gets caught fairly often. I mean, he's, you know, he's got a good success rate, but it's not otherworldly. And so Castro's streak is pretty impressive and fun. I think that, you know, stolen bases get kind of a a bad rap. Like we, as I think this is a place where, you know, analytics has taken some of the wind out of the game's sails because, you know, Mm -hmm. we know, we know where the break even point is. And as a result of that, teams just steal, try to steal less often. And I think that because we, we kind of ran base stealing through the efficiency mill, fans were maybe left with the impression that like all you had to be was blazing fast. And I think that it it really does a disservice to like the very good base dealers to not appreciate the the full multitude of that skill and sort of the breadth of that skill. And so yeah, I really like it when we have a a player who helps to illustrate that so dramatically where you can really appreciate that, you know, you can't just be fast. Like there is strategy to it and you have to, you know, you have to time your jumps right and you have to get the right lead off base. And I don't know. I just think that I think that my one of my 2021 bits is gonna be just arguing for more base stealing generally because it makes me happy and there's a lot less of it than than uh, there used to be. And so mm-hmm. when we can when we can look at it and say that there is more than it is a multidimensional, multifaceted skill, I think that's a good thing. So I'm glad that yeah. we have a good example of that. Yeah, and LaCastro actually tries to steal fairly often by today's standards. Devin said in his piece that he's in the 94th percentile when it comes to attempting steals. And yet, just to put things into perspective, Tim Raines stole so much more often than Tim LaCastro did. So Tim LaCastro has 383 plate appearances in his career thus far, Mm -hmm. and he has stolen those 28 bases. 
Tim Raines in his rookie year had 363 play appearances, so almost equivalent, and he had 71 stolen bases that year. So, yeah, the 80s were a different era, yeah. and you could see those guys go all the time, whereas Castro is going often for his era, but not nearly as often as Raines's era. And he still has a ways to go to catch Vince Coleman, who has the record for most consecutive steals, not just to start a career, but period, right. which is 50. So he is uh, barely more than halfway there. Yeah, it can be it can be a fun thing we watch, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah, I, I hope that this does not make him less likely to attempt it, though, because right. he doesn't want to risk his perfection. <laughs> but yeah, huh. you got to put it at risk. You got to defend your title. So he doesn't, he doesn't strike me as, as one to shy away from a challenge. If you've been hit by a pitch as many times as that guy <laughs> has, and you keep standing in the batter's box, I think that you can like, you know, you can take it. I think that that yeah. is an indication that you are a a sturdy sort because otherwise you'd go like i'm tired of getting hit by pitches i would it would take one and i'd be like i am retiring (laughs) from baseball (laughs) just one that's all from one speedster to another i want to just talk about this ronald cunha jr play there was a wild sunday night baseball game again this one was between philly and atlanta And Acuna just showed off all his skills in this one. So he would have three hits in this game and he hit a home run later in the game. But in the first inning, he beat out what was really just a routine grounder to short. It was really impressive. It was maybe more impressive than the homer because this ball, like when I wrote about moving the mound back a few weeks ago, I noted there that like the base pass, the 90 feet between bases, technically not quite 90 feet, but we always say 90 feet. That more or less still works because like runners are faster than they used to be and bigger, but fielders are bigger and faster and stronger and they throw harder. And so it it mostly evens out like it still feels like you hit a routine ground ball and you're going to be out and there still feel like there are the right number of close plays, bang, bang plays and easy outs. And this one just broke (laughs) the 90 feet, basically, like Acuna hit this grounder to short to Didi Gregorius and it was a fairly hard hit ball and Gregorius didn't field it perfectly like he didn't bobble it or anything but you know he took a couple extra steps maybe he didn't receive it in the best possible position partly because it was hit hard but you know he could have gotten rid of it more quickly but with almost anyone else it would have been fine and it would have looked totally routine except that Acuna beat it out and he had a 31 feet per second sprint speed on this play which uh, to compare to the baseline I think the average is like 27 and elite as MLB defines it is 30 so this was faster even than elite and Acuna is uh, perennially one of the fastest runners on the sprint speed leaderboard and he just beat this thing out like (laughs) I mean if Gregorius could go back and do it again and Noah Acuna was running like maybe he could have gotten rid of it faster but when he did get rid of it I think I saw somewhere Gregorius threw 88 point something miles per hour it was his hardest track throw since 2016 so really it was just like oh he broke the base pass because that is just how good and fast he is and then also he got more hits and home runs and just showed that he can do it all so That was pretty impressive. And just like, I feel like Acuna has been 
almost a little lost in the Acuna Tatis Soto triumvirate lately, just because Soto had such an incredible offensive season last year, and he's so precocious, so so beyond his years when it comes to plate discipline, and then Tatis is so incredibly exciting and scintillating, and Acuna is really like just as good as either of them, if not better. I I don't like I don't want to pick sides here because I want all sides <laughs> like we don't have to just choose one we get them all luckily but that speed combined yeah. with that power like Tatis has that too Soto doesn't really have the speed aspect of it he's not like a super slow poke but he doesn't give you the the defense and the burnerness that those other two do and this was just a, a reminder of Acuna's all-around talent yeah, it's um you know, we we have talked about him as the guy most uh, among the current crop sort of most likely to be a 40-40 guy. And then yeah. you watch that and you're like, is this 40 is that enough steals? Should it be <laughs> should it be 50? Should we yeah. be pegging him for 100,000 steals? <laughs> you know, you just it's not especially in the early going of a season in that first month, you know, we're we're constantly trying to shift between what is signal and what is noise. And I think that when we see examples like sort of proof of concept of a skill that a guy can do a thing, we have to remind ourselves like being able to do it, amazing. Being able to replicate that over the course of a season, not a given. But then you look at Acuna and you're like, all of the projections are too low. You've lowballed them. I am convinced by this one moment that he will yeah. execute 50 stolen bases in the course of the season because speed like that just isn't. I mean, it's above elite. What is what is the word for that? We need a <laughs> well, new super. We know. need a new superlative. Yeah. So yeah, if if you had asked me like a couple of years ago, I in the the great Acuna Soto debate. <sighs> I probably would have taken Acuna, and I I feel like maybe that would have been the consensus. I don't know. But just because like Acuna, he has the power and the speed and is a pretty good defender, and Soto doesn't really have the speed and hasn't had great defensive metrics, at least, and so... It's harder for him to like be the war leader if he is not playing elite defense and doesn't have that speed to be an incredible base runner, but... I don't know, like if he does literally hit like Ted Williams, which he pretty much has, then you can be the best player in baseball, maybe without being a a great defender as Ted Williams was. So he is still very much in the running there. But yeah, it felt like initially, like I think before maybe we all came to appreciate just how much fun Soto is and the Soto shuffle and all of that. Oh, yeah. Because Acuna was maybe like more eye-catching at first, but then it turned out no, Soto is just as as fun and, and personable as, as Acuna is as well. So different skill sets, and it's really hard to pick one or the other. And as I said, fortunately, we don't have to. Well, and I think that when a guy comes into the league as sort of the consensus number one prospect in the game, right. you know, and that's not to say that Juan Soto was a slouch. You know, you look at you look back on his ranks now, and you're like, oh, everybody had had him too low. But you know, he was a he was a top fifty prospect the year he graduated, at least at Fangraphs, and I think that's consistent across the board. Like he was well regarded. But you know, when you when you're the number one guy, um, yeah. I think there is a shine, and then it's not unusual for dudes who are well thought of but sort of outstrip our understanding of them when they come into the league to to kind of take the mantle but yeah we can't 
Shame on us if we if we sleep on Ronald Acuna Jr. Mm-hmm. That game was so great until the very end of it. <laughs> I know the Acuna play was overshadowed by the last play, which uh, last week we talked about a controversial call on the Michael Conforto walk off hit by pitch. And in that case, it was not going to the replay review that made everyone mad, plus the blown call initially. In this case, it was going to the replay review and still not overturning what sure seemed to be another blown call. So this was on the the sack fly where Alec Boehm scored, was called safe with the game-ending run, and the replays really seemed to pretty conclusively show that he did not actually touch the plate, that his toe and his foot just sort of hopped over it. And for whatever reason, the call on the field was allowed to stand. It was not considered conclusive, even though I think just about everyone watching it outside of the MLB replay room thought it was. So I'm not sure what happened there. Yeah, I think that we we might be due for a longer conversation about like a philosophical conversation about what we want replay to accomplish, both in the sport generally and perhaps on this podcast. Because, <laughs> yeah, you you want these calls, especially late in game, to be right. And I don't think that the answer is to do away with replay entirely, because as we've discussed once you have the ability to slow something down and see that the call was wrong at home, you can't take that tool away from the game because that's going to make people even crazier than this. Mm-hmm. But it does feel sort of uniquely frustrating to have the tool at your disposal, be able to see, oh, well, that is wrong. but And they will they will correct this error because people make mistakes. And, you know, right. the, the difference, the gap between where his foot was and where it needed to be for a run to score was very small. And so you can understand why a guy wouldn't get that right in the moment. But to then be able to look at it and say, oh yeah, he really didn't touch home plate, but then not correct it is, you know, I I, I don't think that um, Braves fans are out of line to be frustrated and think that that, that should have been corrected in the moment. And, you know, that mm-hmm. doesn't guarantee that they're going to win the game, but it, it sure doesn't guarantee that that's when they're going to lose it. So yeah. doesn't sure doesn't guarantee that that's when they're going to lose it. That was hard to parse, but what I'm saying is they wouldn't have lost it just then. <laughs> right. So there you go. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I don't know if it's that the replay umps are like unwilling to show up their colleague or whether there's just too much deference given to the call on the field. Like it just has to so conclusively be proven wrong. And in this case, it sure looked like it was and just didn't clear that bar for whatever reason. And even the Phillies were like not particularly pretending that he actually touched the plate like Bohm said I was called safe that's all that matters <laughs> when he was asked if he touched the plate and Joe Girardi said it looked like his big toe kind of hit the corner of the plate <laughs> which is uh, you know it didn't sound like he was very confident in that either didn't seem like the plate even got like dirty from anything touching it it seemed pretty immaculate even after the slide so the delightful little pirouette as he bounced. So I don't know. Like like you, I'm inclined to give the initial call a pass or excuse it because like he was in position to make that call. And so as long as you're hustling and getting over there in position to get a good luck at it, I will forgive you for not seeing what happened in this moment where all these bodies are colliding and, you know, it's happening super fast. I understand how that call can be wrong, but that's what we have replay for, to slow it down and look at it from every angle. So... I don't know. That was a a bit of a black mark against replay, and I'm generally a pro-replay person, but you got to get those calls right. (laughs) So 
Not sure what the issue was there. Even Mike Trout, who barely tweets at all, and when he does, it's always something innocuous. He responded to a Will Middlebrooks tweet about how bad the call was and said, so bad, with an ellipsis and a face with tears of joy emoji. So if even Trout is moved to tweet about it, you know you screwed something up. And speaking of tweets related to this slide, I saw a Joshian tweet that I felt like was subtweeting us about uh. the, the Bohm play. He said, if we called what Alec Bohm did slide framing, no one would have a problem with the missed call. They'd just say it was hidden value, ignore that it was umpire failure, and give all the credit to Bohm. <laughs> I felt targeted by this tweet. Well, I think that, like, you know, I guess the place where I would maybe take issue with that is that it is not difficult to intervene on plays like this and not slow the game down to the point of being unplayable. (laughs) But you can't review every call. I guess I would say in response to that, well, that's kind of rude. <laughs> um, and I and I would I would further offer that I think one of the places where this differs pretty importantly is that most framed pitches that get called strikes that mm, that doesn't seem like a good response either. I don't know that I have a response other than to say that's rude. <laughs> <laughs> it's not totally inaccurate. It's not totally inaccurate. <laughs> I think, though, that what I would say is that, um, shut up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, let us have our inconsistent appreciation for catcher framing and right. not caring about umpires blowing those calls. I think if there is a difference, I would say that we don't know that this is a demonstrable, repeatable skill. Sure. What Alec Bohm did there you here. Go. That's a good... So there's a difference. There's a difference. That's why I appreciate catcher framing. It's not just because like umpires are messing up. It's because catchers are doing something that makes those pitches more likely to be called strikes. And it's like a defensive skill that has always been valued and that like catchers are taught to employ from the start. And now we recognize that it's more valuable than we used to know, but it's not a new thing. And it's always been considered part of the catching position. Right, you have to present a pitch. It's not as if, right. you know, it that t- is... It takes skill, too. Yeah. 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 And, uh, I mean, sliding is certainly a skill, but I don't know that sliding in such a way that umpires call it wrong is a skill. Like, if it were, if we could prove that it were, and we knew that, like, Alec Bohm had some special illusion skill that he was able to make umpires make the wrong call and call him safe when he was actually out, then, uh, you know, maybe I would actually appreciate that. But I don't think we're there yet, and I don't enjoy it as much. Like, aesthetically speaking, I enjoy the skill of a catcher framing a pitch and presenting a pitch well. And I wouldn't say that I enjoy Alec Bohm not actually touching the plate, but being called safe. Like a good slide can be great if you're right. like sliding over a tag and you like are legitimately safe and, and you just do an amazing job of avoiding the tag. That's cool. That's not quite what Joe is talking about here, but I don't think it's quite analogous. Like until we prove that uh, someone actually has this repeated ability to pull the wool over umpire's eyes and slide in such a way that it convinces umpires that they saw something that didn't happen, then uh, then I might go along with it. But as it is, I don't think it's a perfect analogy. But I get it. I get what Joe's saying. He is a he is a catcher framing opponent or at least uh, looks at it more as umpire inadequacy than catcher skill. And 
I think that that is a reasonable if flawed position. And um, <laughs> clearly, you know, we have acknowledged that we are soon to be uh, on the outside looking in on this issue. And mm-hmm. in the meantime, I think that uh, you should let us have this one because, as you said, it is, but it is both a part of the job they have to present the pitch somehow so why not present it as ideally as possible and there is skill there and uh i think that you know what the balance between skill on the one hand and error on the other you know there's there is some dance that's being done there but i don't Mm -hmm. think i think it understates the extent to which it is a skill to attribute the majority of that interaction to umpire error, mm-hmm. especially when you think about like some of the calls that, you know, that we think of when we think of a great framer, it's, it's very subtle, right? This isn't right. jerking the ball from, you know, six inches below the strike zone up into the zone and, and them going, ah, he's out. And then we're like, yay, good framing. We're like, those are loud hands. And, right. you know, so I think that the place where catchers really demonstrate the value of good presentation is is in the moves that are subtle, that are close to the boundary, and that they frame up really nicely in a way that doesn't even alert either the umpire or candidly the fan to the fact that it mm-hmm. has been uh, framed. And right. so I think that that is a very, that stands in stark contrast to this. And, you know, if you're a person who sits there and says, well, that feels a lot like cheating, I would say, on balance, I think that we we tend to think that over the course of a season, even if it's not true over the course of a particular at-bat, that these things sort of tend to even themselves out. And that might be a place where this also differs pretty dramatically from what Bohm did. Mm-hmm. And, you know, people were giving him a hard time about how he responded to the play where he said he was called safe. But that's the best way to do it. And it's like, you're just you just work here. You know, it's, <laughs> it's other people's fault that, that a mistake was made. So, right. yes, yes, that's what I'd say about that. Yeah, and some umpire mistakes are just umpire mistakes on ball and strike calls. Like for we, sure, we don't we don't look at every blown call and say, "Oh, wizardry by the catcher." Like yeah. sometimes the catcher doesn't even catch it that well, and it's yeah. just the umpire messes up. Or sometimes uh, it goes in the other direction where the catcher catches it really well, and it should have been a strike, and it wasn't. So yeah, I I don't think that we automatically credit that entirely to the catcher, but no. I, there are some differences here. I yes. guess so. Yeah, I get it, but also, shut up. <laughs> <laughs> Someone asked us to talk about the MLB field vision replay of the Acuna beating out the infield grounder, which for those who haven't seen it, I'll, I'll link to this video, but MLB has this new stat cast based system where they sort of simulate the play with figures uh, who (laughs) they look kind of like crash test dummies or something and they're running around in uniform and so it's using the Hawkeye data that is able to see where everyone was on the field and then you can move the camera around and they act out what they actually did on the field except inevitably it looks sort of silly because it is not the actual players it's just these generic figures who are running around and i can see the value of this in some cases and i know that this is like year one of the system and i know that they're planning to maybe make it better and more lifelike in the future but the acuna play was probably not the best demonstration of this technology (laughs) 
No, it's... <laughs> they look like those, um, the little wooden, like, artist dolls that you, design <laughs> dolls that you can, you know, flex. Right. You have the ability to sort of pronate the, the limbs at their at yeah. various joints so that if you're, like, trying to go to art school, you can learn how to draw a human form. Mm-hmm. And uh, <laughs> I was mostly struck, even as a non-video game person, if you look at, like, MLB The Show these days, it is so... <laughs> <laughs> creepy and uncanny and lifelike and yeah. so to have that and then go back to this <laughs> where you have grayed out guys and yeah. you know the little gray figure who's supposed to be Acuna does not appear to be running as as fast as he ought to be no. and he doesn't have none of them have fingers and so <laughs> when at the end of that of that play in real life you know Acuna like points to the dugout to be like I did it I did it I, right. I was safe and it's just this nubbin hand (laughs) pointing that way and he he's kind of running like he's a little bit constipated yeah he really is that's (laughs) it does not look like they made ronald acuna look less athletic somehow right it's like the stride is like it's very short steps i don't know why because like that seems to be something that the system is actually tracking but for whatever reason when you simulate it like this he does not look like one of the most athletic major leaguers out there and also like when these figures move like their head bobs from side to side almost like when a pigeon walks and it looks very silly just watching it again (laughs) i think he's taking such small steps to try to denote how fast he's going rather than being like a long lumbering sort of gait but he just looks he doesn't look like it. I don't think this is a faithful rendering. You know, if he no. if he is actually one of those wooden uh, models, uh, you would not get into art school with this rendition. <laughs> yeah. Again, like I I can I can appreciate how there are going to be instances of this that are like very cool. Yeah, and you even in highlight reels are not normally going to be dealing with something that is at such a high. You know, that as as so far into the tails as that play was. Again, Mm -hmm. we need a new way to describe the speed that he demonstrated, but it looks very silly. (laughs) It does. Yeah. And he has no bat either. So he just like swings nothingness and the ball goes out. Yeah, it's it's weird. It maybe needs another revision. But I would like this view if it's like a complicated play, like if there are relays going on and like multiple runners rounding the base and like you want to see where the cutoff man was and where was he when he made the catch and then made the throw and where was the runner at the time. It would be helpful to have this representation of the play because any one camera angle is probably not going to give you all of the actors in that one play. So to have this recreation could be quite handy, I think. But in this particular play, it's just a guy busting it down the first baseline. So you can kind of just see that with the footage or assume what it looks like. And it does not look more impressive <laughs> with the figure, <laughs> the the gray man with uh, no features. So, and yeah, the I guess they didn't really put much effort into recreating the rest of the stadium or anything. It's just like pretty generic looking ballpark with gray stands and just emptiness so it does not look like MLP the show I guess the focus is on the field and on the players and where the ball is and all of that but yeah I look forward to future revisions of MLP field vision I think it could be great someday 
Yeah, I think that we want to we want to encourage people for a good first attempt. Like this is past the this is past first pancake, right? We've mm-hmm. we've progressed past that. But it is it is always going to be the the sort of funny thing that you have when you when there are a lot of different manifestations of technology related to the sport that you care about. It's hard not to draw comparisons between them. And so even though this does things that say the sh- MLB the show does not, and it is clearly pointed at a different purpose, and so it is unfair f- for me to compare them at all. I just naturally want to. They should take his creepy real. Cunha face from it'll be the show and just put it on the gray <laughs> form and make it like purposefully terrifying. Yeah. And as much as we're nitpicking this, uh, 10 years ago, this would have been like witchcraft if we could have seen this and if we could have known that they would have this sort of data on where everyone was at every second during a play, that would have totally blown our minds. So we're sort of spoiled, I think, just by oh, yeah. how much information is out there now. <laughs> yeah, it's useful to remember. I, tr- I tried to keep that in mind when MLB TV has like been finicky or when that... Blair said it's like yeah this this could be better but also I can watch pretty much every baseball game going on simultaneously and it costs me like 120 bucks a year so Mm -hmm. I guess like understood in those terms um, as a person who's not in a place that is heavily blacked out Mm -hmm. it is a little silly to nitpick although I have complained about far sillier things so don't hold me to it anybody (laughs) yeah and last thing I wanted to mention is that while we were watching all this baseball on Sunday the Masters were taking place as well and the Masters were won by Hideki Matsuyama and as many people saw Stephanie Epstein of SI tweeted New Masters champ Hideki Matsuyama asked for his athletic inspirations, says he can't really name any golfers. He mostly admires baseball players. You Darvish, Shohei Otani, Kenta Maeda, which is uh, pretty great. Those are good idols to have. Absolutely. And like, you know, you know, especially like Otani and Darvish are so imposing mm-hmm. as on mound figures and, and, you know, like they're just big tall strapping guys and i don't want to not give some shine to kenta like yeah that's exciting it's also nice because i still think that most people who are not baseball fans think of the average baseball player as kind of schlubby yeah <laughs> right like i think that the the mental image they have is of a you know like a a strong but perhaps dumpy hitter i'm being terrible that all of those bodies are beautiful but i think that that's like the image they have is like a a, a big burly slugger not someone you look at and be like that's an athlete and so it's cool to be like those are athletes because they are and so it's nice we have to push back against the the babe ruth of it all i guess <laughs> yes it's really babe ruth's fault I don't yes, know. I hope the older no one, Babe Ruth. <laughs> I don't. I hope no one takes offense to that. I don't mean that they're bad athletes. They're great athletes. They're certainly better athletes than I am. But I do think that the 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 sort of mental image that is conjured up is of someone who's perhaps not totally svelte. Mm-hmm. And the same goes for golfers. And it's not as true of golfers today as it used to be either. I, I don't really have um, a mental image of golfers at all but that's more of a of a what sports meg has cared about thing than than a a a firm stance on what they have looked like over the course of time i'm sure they're all great everyone's a great athlete 
Yeah. <laughs> so I'm that. hoping that uh, two of Matsuyama's idols will go up against each other this week because Shohei's start got pushed back because they're taking it easy with his blister. And oh, he right. might possibly start Friday against the Twins and maybe Ooh. there could be a, a Shohei versus Maeda matchup, but not sure if that will be the case yet as we speak. But if so, that would be must-see TV for Hideki Matsuyama. So the rest of this episode will be given over to an interview, and unfortunately you were not available at the time that we recorded it, so it'll be me and two guests, and let me just set the scene here. So this interview is going to be about another great all-around athlete, perhaps the greatest and most all-around athlete of all time. I think you could make the case that that is true in baseball, of course. I'm talking about Martin Diego, and we wanted to devote most of an episode to Diego just because we're all talking about two-way players these days, and we're all marveling at what Otani is doing, as we should be. But I do think that we should acknowledge the others who have gone before and have pulled off similarly impressive two-way feats. And we're in the situation where we all say, oh, it hasn't happened since Babe Ruth. And I'm guilty of that as well. But there were some real Negro League greats who were known for being elite two-way players and did that more recently than Babe Ruth. And now even MLB recognizes those performances as quote-unquote major league. And therefore, when we talk about the last two-way major leaguers to be stars, we should probably be talking about Negro Leaguers, players like Martin DeHigo and Bullet Rogan and Double Duty Radcliffe and Leon Day, all of whom except Radcliffe are in the National Baseball Hall of Fame. But DeHigo is in five Halls of Fame, which is uh, pretty impressive. I think he and maybe Willie Wells are the only ones who can claim that. So he's in the U.S. Hall of Fame, the Mexican, Venezuelan, Cuban, and Dominican Halls of Fame. And just a, a brief career summary to set up this conversation. So Dehigo was born in 1905 in Cuba. He died in 1971, also in Cuba. And he played in the Negro Leagues from 1923 to 1936, and then again a little bit in the 40s and just played all over the world during that time. After that time, he played in the Cuba, of course. He played in the Dominican, Puerto Rico, Venezuela, just everywhere that he is in the halls of fames of. And he was an incredible hitter and an incredible pitcher as well. And according to the Seamheads database, in his games against Negro Leaguers, he has a 143 OPS plus career as a hitter and a 133 career ERA plus as a pitcher. So he was, you know, 30 plus to 40 plus percent better than the league at everything he did. And he did everything. He not only pitched and hit and switch hit, but also played every position. And you will hear our guests say that he didn't catch, but he did catch at least once in a Negro Leagues game. So I I got a breakdown from Larry Lester, our former guest, the great Negro Leagues researcher. And he had a breakdown of uh, almost 500 Negro Leagues games that he had in his database for DeHigo. And the positional breakdown goes like, Shortstop, 114 games, first base, 69, right field, 69, third base, 56, second base, 49, 
And then he started 40-something games as a pitcher, played 33 in left field, 27 in center, and then he caught one game as well. And I asked about the circumstances of the game that he caught, and the other great Negro Leagues researcher who has helped out with the Seamheads database, Gary Ashwell, he looked up the box score and the circumstances for that game, and here is what Gary says. Dehigo is catching the second game of a doubleheader on September 1st, 1929 against the Lincoln Giants in the Catholic Protectory Oval in the Bronx. He was with the Hildale Club and Hildale's regular catcher, Hall of Famer Biz Mackey, had caught every inning of the previous 27 league games, oh counting, the, yeah, counting the first game of that doubleheader. The second string catcher, Joe Lewis, hadn't appeared in a game since July 19th. Presumably he was injured, though I'd have to look at the newspapers to see if there's any commentary about that. So the team was carrying one catcher. Another doubleheader was scheduled for the next day in Philadelphia between the same two teams. Mackey would catch both ends of that one. So you'd have to guess that DeHigo was spelling him in the first doubleheader as an emergency move so Mackey didn't have to catch four games in two days. And DeHigo had one put out and no assists, committed one error, and allowed two stolen bases on two attempts. So perhaps he was not a great catcher, but he was capable of playing catcher as well as everything else. And when he was in the lineup as a starting pitcher, he hit all over the place. I don't think he hit leadoff or second, but he batted third, he batted fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth, ninth, all over the place. And sometimes he was managing, so he would pencil himself into the lineup. And just like the testimonials from everyone he played against, like there are so many quotes from just other great players being awed by what Dehigo accomplished. And Johnny Mize, the Hall of Famer who played against him, I think later in his career in 43, maybe in the Dominican when he was a manager as well, said he was the only guy I ever saw who could play all nine positions, manage, run, and switch hit. So he did it all really. And Buck Leonard, the great Hall of Famer, said he was the greatest all-around player I know. I'd say he was the best ball player of all time, black or white. He could do it all. He was my ideal ball player. If he's not the greatest, I don't know who is. You take your Ruths, Cobbs, and DiMaggio's. Give me DeHigo, and I bet I'd beat you almost every time. There are many other quotes like that who just says that he was like an otherworldly talent at every position. So in the same way that Otani has almost ruined every other player for me just because he does both things, I think if I had seen DeHigo, like he probably would have ruined every player, including yeah. Otani, because like not only could he hit and pitch, but he could play every position well. And so in the 1980s, the Negro Leagues players who were still around were asked to vote on an all-time team. And they knew that Dehigo had to be on it, but they couldn't figure out where to put him because yeah. you could put him at like any position. So he got votes at three different positions and they ended up making him the second baseman on the all-time team, even though that was not one of his most frequent positions. But it's just like, well, got to pick somewhere and yeah. put him somewhere. And yeah, just really an incredible player, like one home run titles in the Negro Leagues and was just a, a dominant starter too, especially in other countries. So he was also just a legend in Cuba and other countries for who he was off the field. As we will hear in this segment, I wanted to learn more and hear more about Dehigo. And so our guests will be Martin Dehigo's youngest son, Gilberto Dehigo, who was 19 when his father passed away. So he got to know him as a, a person and has since written a book about him, a biography. So he knows him from that perspective too. So 
he was able to join from Orlando and Dehigo, of course, was bilingual because he could do everything. My Spanish is not quite podcast interview quality, and Gilberto felt more comfortable giving the interview in Spanish as well. So we were joined by Adrian Burgos, who translated for us, but also offered his own expertise because he is an expert on the Negro Leagues and the history of Latinos in U.S. sports as well. And uh, he's a professor of history at the University of Illinois, who's written books about the Negro Leagues and other Latino players and, and figures in Latino baseball. So was happy to have him translate, but also chime in and add some context where necessary. So that will be the interview, and I hope that uh, everyone appreciates Dehiko after that as much as I have come to lately. I'm so excited. It's one of the many sad things about Sam not being able to do Effectively Wild anymore is that I, I very rarely get to listen to Effectively Wild <laughs> right. as, as, a, as a non-participant. And so and I miss that because, mm-hmm. Ben, the, you're a good podcaster. Oh, so I am very excited to listen to this interview and get to learn more about a player who I think, you know, the omission seems quite glaring. So I am looking forward to this. Yep. And he's nicknamed El Maestro and the Immortal as well, with Terrific. good reason, yeah. I think. So uh, so this interview will be in Spanish and then also in English. And uh, we will honor Martin Dijigo's two languages and playing all over the world with the rest of this podcast. So we'll be back in just one moment with Gilberto Dijigo and Adrian Burgos. And they say that I'm the most in the Washington Post. Sing my praises on all the while on the radio dial But in my life I found You're dead if you look down I just want to stick around for a while I just want to stick around for a while I'm in it for the long haul, baby So you're just gonna have to wait Right now, I am happy to be joined by two guests who will help us talk about the legacy of Martin Diego. And first, we are joined by Martin's youngest son, Gilberto Diego. Gilberto, hola, bienvenidos. Gracias por venir. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much. I'm glad for you joining for, for you. I'm sorry for my English. Not very, not good, but I try speak English sometimes, you know? Well, thank you for trying, but uh, you won't have to speak English only today because we are also joined by Professor Adrian Burgos, who has agreed to help us translate and also talk a little bit about Martin and the legacy of Latino players in the Negro Leagues. Welcome, Professor Burgos. Thanks for having me on, Ben. Very much appreciate to be here and to meet uh, the other son of Martin Diego. I had the uh, pleasure of meeting uh, Martin Jr. many years ago in San Fuegos, Cuba. So uh, I, now I get a better sense of the whole family. <laughs> <laughs> so, Gilberto, tell me a little bit about growing up and knowing your father. What was he like as a father and what did he tell you about his baseball career? La pregunta es, ¿puedo decirnos sobre eh, su padre y qué él te dijo sobre su carrera en jugando béisbol? Bueno, este, mi padre fue, para mí, mi padre. Yo no entendía que él era un gran jugador de béisbol. Era mi papá. Y mi papá que iba a mi casa por las tardes y hacíamos competencias de, de conocimiento de historia de Cuba. 
eh, cuando él empezó a ser como entrenador de un lugar cercano donde yo vivía, yo comencé a ir a la pelota por contagio, porque escuchaba a las demás personas hablar que él era entrenador de pelota. El único guante de pelota que yo tuve en mi vida me lo regaló él. Okay, so um, Gilberto answers that he was, for him, Martín Diego was his father. Uh, he did not see him as his great big ball player. He saw him at, and he knew him as his father. Um, instead of baseball, when uh, growing up, they would all gather together and they would have trivia contests over Cuban history. And that's one of the things they would do as, as a family, as uh, kids. Eventually, he began to basically he caught the baseball bug by, by everybody else playing, and he was very interested in playing, and he began. And the very first glove that he got, the only glove he had as a, as a kid, was given to him by his father. Pero incluso en esa época, eh, que yo empecé a jugar, yo tendría seis años, por supuesto no tenía las habilidades que, puede, que pudo tener él de niño. Yo era un muchacho que trataba de, de quedar bien con su papá, y entonces eh, yo empecé un equipo de pequeñas ligas y me ponchaba con frecuencia. Y él se burlaba de mí con un grupo de muchachos más. Cada vez que yo iba a batir, se burlaba. Entonces, un día le dije que por qué él no me enseñaba. Y él me dijo que a él nadie le enseñó, que yo tenía que aprender solo. So, he, he said that, you know, he was about six years old. Uh, he didn't he didn't have the talent or skills that his father had, but he started playing little league baseball and he would strike out a lot. And his dad would be in the stands and he made he'd laugh and joke around with the folks about, you know, his, about uh, Gilberto striking out. And uh, so Gilberto asked him, like, um, how come you don't teach me? And his father said, no one taught me. I just started playing. I just learned. Entonces comencé una, una carrera en ese lugar practicando todos los demás deportes para darle celos. Así practiqué esgrima, natación, tenis, judo, eh, polo acuático, fútbol, los deportes con los entrenadores que habían ahí y siempre los entrenadores le decían, yo pasaba un mes, mes y medio, y los entrenadores decían, tengo a tu hijo Martín, y, <risa> y, y yo esperaba que él viniera a mí. Todas esas cosas yo las dije aquí en este libro and my padre el inmortal que lo acabo de traducir al inglés so he shares how after his father was making fun of him playing baseball he decided he was get, going to get trained and play all the other sports gymnastics track and field swimming water polo and the other coaches would tell Martin Diego tell him you know hey i have your son he's doing well he's and the hope was he Gilberto hoped that his father would come to him and with you know check out how he's doing in all these other sports uh, that somehow you know strike up kind of uh envy or jealousy about hey everybody else gets to train him and then uh and so all of these stories that um that Gilberto's sharing with us he wrote down as part of his book uh, mi padre inmortal my father the um the immortal is the nickname the immortal um and it's just been translated into english so pretty soon everyone else will be able to access the stories Great. And did you feel pressure, Gilberto, growing up as the, the son of one of the greatest players of all time and one of the players who could do everything, play every position and hit and pitch so well? Si, siendo el hijo de Gran Martín Diego, tú tenías como una presión que tenía que ser 
tan grande, tan bueno en, en jugando los deportes como su papá? Bueno, en realidad, Sergio Martín, digo, eh, en esa etapa de mi vida fue, vamos a decir, como que me perseguía, ¿no? Yo recuerdo que yo empecé a jugar béisbol por fuera, por la calle, y adquirí habilidades y tuve bastantes habilidades jugando béisbol. Y entonces fui a ese sitio donde él era entrenador con el equipo de la escuela. Ya pasaba unos años. Yo estaba, tendría como 12 años por ahí. Y el, el, entrenador, de la, el, el entrenador de la escuela, cuando supo que yo era hijo de Martín Digo, me puso cuarto bate. Entonces, cuando yo llegué ahí, eso fue una sensación porque él fue a verme. Y toda aquella gente que se burlaban de mí fueron también a verme. So, of course, like during that period of his life, it was something, you know, big to be the son of, of Martin Diego, but he still, you know, had to develop. And so he started playing baseball on the streets. And then after a few years, he eventually got to the academy where his father was also one of the coaches. And he began to train under other coaches. And the coach put him in the cleanup spot, in the four, a four hole in the lineup. And then, you know, everyone started gathering around to see how, you know, the son of Martin Diego, how he would be playing and uh, batting cleanup. Entonces, yo, yo, yo era catcher del equipo. Y cuando me tocó batear, había un hombre en segunda. Y el pitcher rival eh, no tenía mucha velocidad. Realmente lo que tiraba era mucha curva. Y si algo yo aprendí, que él me dijo en algún momento, en conversaciones o con las personas con que él hablaba a veces y yo escuché, era que siempre viera calentar al pitcher, porque el pitcher cuando calentaba siempre descubría sus secretos y ya yo sabía que el arma fuerte de ese pitcher era la curva y entonces me puse en el cajón de adelante y esperé la curva. So, he was a catcher at this point and he was batting fourth and his first at bat there was a runner on second. And he knew that because he had been watching the opposing pitcher, they had a lot. His best pitch was his curveball. And one of the things that he does remember his father teaching him and and advising him is that when you're at the ballpark, always watch the opposing pitcher warm up. You'll get a sense of his best pitches. And that's how he knew that that opposing pitcher was a curveballer. And so he stepped to the plate confidently. Luego entonces. Ese pitcher me, me tiró una recta y me sorprendió. Me cantaron el primer strike. Me volvió a tirar una recta y le di fao. Me volvió a tirar una recta y me dio fao. Y él viene con la curva. Y le esperé la curva. Y vi una línea por arriba de tercera que fue triple. Llegué fácil, impulsé la carrera y llegué fácil a la tercera. Después, eh, en otro turno al bate, batí cuatro veces. Dos rollis por el cuadro. Batí otro hit e impulsé otra carrera. Se me fue al robo un jugador y lo atrapé. Y cuando se terminó el partido, él fue a donde, fue donde estaba yo y me dijo, ¿por qué me decía el término güey, como se dice en México? So, he stepped into the, bat, the batter's box that first time up and the pitcher surprised him, threw a fastball, first pitch. And so he watched it, strike one. Then he threw another fastball And he filed this off and in a third fastball in a row. And he filed that off. So he was behind 0-2. But he kept watching. He's like, he's going to throw me a curveball now. 
And so finally he got that curveball. He lined it over third base and actually all the way and got a triple out of it, bringing in the runner. And in his four turns at bat, he had a couple of um, couple of hits, drove in another run. And, you know, after the game, his father comes up to him and there's this Mexican expression uh, saying, you know, hey, man, it's a hey, wait. Me dijo, güey, finalmente aprendiste a jugar pelota y me dio 10 pesos. Me dio 10 pesos. Eh, me profesionalizó en ese momento mi papá. <risa> Luego, en el servicio militar obligatorio, el capitán de la unidad, cuando se enteró también que yo era hijo de Martín Digo, también me puso cuarto bate. Y en ese juego, el pitcher rival era el capitán de la otra unidad, que era un guajiro que lo que tiraba era una recta de humo. Y, y entonces no tiraba curva, lo que tiraba era recta. Tenía mucha velocidad. Y entonces me puse en el cajón de atrás cuando fui a batear. Cogí el bate corto y he despachado una línea por el center field, buenísima, y llegué bien a primera. Leí dos hits ese día. A partir de ahí, el capitán me dio todos los pases que yo quería. So, um, finally, uh, his dad said, hey, you finally learned how to play baseball. And he gave him $10. <laughs> and, uh, and so everyone was happy uh, with that. Uh, later on, when uh, Gilberto entered into the military service, uh, the obligatory military service in Cuba, he started playing baseball there. And when the unit commander saw that he's the son of, of uh, Martin Diego, again, they put him on the team, cleanup hitter. And the first game he played, he was watching the other pitcher, who was actually the captain from another unit on the base. And so he noticed that all he had was fastball, fastball. And as Gilberto describes it, it was like smoke. It's just fast, fast. But since he knew what his uh, that pitcher's strength was, he went ahead and had a couple of hits. And his own captain, after Gilberto had such a great game, is like, anytime you need a pass, I'll get you a pass. I'll get you a pass. I'll get you a pass. <laughs> Ahora, realmente, eh, nunca me preocupó ser hijo de Martín Dijo. Yo traté de hacer mi propio desarrollo eh, deportivo y jugaba basquetbol. Yo empecé a jugar baloncesto y como jugador de baloncesto integré la selección nacional universitaria de Cuba. Estuve en los campeonatos de primera categoría en Cuba y jugué basquetbol. A mí eso realmente nunca me preocupó ni me preocupa porque mi padre es una personalidad y yo soy otra personalidad. Al contrario, a mí me da mucho placer ser hijo de Martín Digo, pero yo he hecho una carrera en mi vida eh, gracias a mis esfuerzos porque yo me hice periodista luego que murió mi padre y he tenido resultados excelentes como periodista. Así que a mí nunca me ha sido lapidaria ser hijo de Martín Dío, tal vez cuando niño sí, porque no porque era hijo de Martín Dío, sino porque se burlaban de mí, él y otros más. Tal vez por eso rechacé tanto el béisbol en un momento. Pero luego de grande entendí que ese no era mi camino y, y tomé otro camino. So, as a young person, he never worried and he's never been worried about and preoccupied, concerned with being Martín Diego's uh, son. He went on to play basketball and actually excelled in Cuba, played on the university team that won the, the top level championship, the national championship in Cuba, played on the Cuban national team. And similarly, in and wanted understanding that his father was Martin Diego, was his own person, and that Gilberto, he's another person. And so he became a journalist. 
and he excelled at that. It was never his preoccupation, his, his main goal in life to somehow you know become Martin Diego. He had to become his own person. And so what made you later in life want to write a book about your father and learn more about his history and, and document it for everyone? Entonces, ¿qué fue el motivo de escribir un libro sobre la vida de su papá y, y uh, compartir esa historia con todos nosotros? En primer lugar, yo quería que vieran a Martín Digo como lo vi yo, como un ser humano, no solamente como el gran jugador de béisbol, porque los deportistas tienen un entorno donde son admirados por sus aficionados, por la gente que lo sigue, pero todos tenemos otra vida. Es decir, te pongo el ejemplo, Diego Armando Maradona fue grande en el fútbol, pero en su vida social dejó mucho que desear. Y yo quería que vieran a Martín Digo como lo que era mi padre, el hombre que me enseñó a amar la historia, el hombre que me dejó muchos consejos eh, dentro de su entorno. Y me parecía que no era justo de que solamente lo recordaran como el gran jugador, sino como el gran ser social que fue Martín Digo. Y por eso he creado la fundación Martín Digo. Por eso escribí el libro y mantengo su legado vivo. Después te quiero decir eh, cómo fue que comencé a pensar en escribir el libro. The first motivation was that he wanted everyone to see Martin de Ego like he saw him, um, as a person, as a human being, as a father. Journalists and fans who knew Martin de Ego as an athlete, as a, as a baseball player, they got to see that side of him, but not the whole side of who he was. Diego Maradona was a great uh, soccer player, football player. People knew about his great achievements on the field, but off the field, he had lots of challenges and problems. And he wanted people to know, to get to know his father, my father, Martin Diego, who taught him, Gilberto, how to love history, who advised him on how to be a good person. It would be an injustice for people just to know him as a baseball player and not really get to know him for who he was as a social being, as someone who did good beyond the baseball field. Um, this is what was his um, Gilberto's motivation for writing the book, that he wanted to keep that legacy of the entirety of who Martin Diego is alive. And that's also the motivation for creating the foundation Martin Diego that he wants people to understand that broader legacy, that person who was Martin Diego and not just that baseball player. I understand. Y, y quería decirte, yo voy en 1978 a República Dominicana como jugador de basquetbol. Ya yo estaba en la universidad, yo estudiaba historia. Y sí, ya sabía que mi papá había sido un gran jugador de béisbol, pero en Cuba. No, te, no conocía, nunca había salido fuera del país. Y no sabía la connotación que tenía Martín Digo fuera de las fronteras de Cuba. Y cuando yo llego a República Dominicana, que el aduanero vio mi apellido, me preguntó que si yo era hijo de Martín Digo. Y yo le dije que sí. Y a partir de ese momento, mi vida entró en un torbellino. Porque cuando salí del aeropuerto, yo no sé cómo se enteraron los periodistas que estaba yo ahí. Y comenzaron a acosarme, a preguntarme y a decirme. Y a la vía donde yo estaba hospedado, fueron decenas de personas 
que habían sido amigos de él o fanáticos que lo vieron jugar a saludarme, a regalarme cosas, a hablar de mi papá. Y yo realmente estaba en medio de estupefacto porque yo no entendía que esa gente fuera amaran tanto a mi padre. And so he didn't really know the legacy or, or the impact that his father had outside of Cuba till the first time in 1978 when he was traveling as, as a basketball player uh, as part of the university team to the Dominican Republic. Here he is, a history major at the university and had never traveled outside of Cuba. And he arrives to the Dominican Republic and someone asked him, they noticed his last name, they asked him, are you this related? Are you the son of Martin Diego? And he said, yes, that, that was my father. And he said from that moment on, the rest of the trip, he entered into this whirlwind where he doesn't know how, but as he exited the, the airport and he got to the hotel, he was followed by sports writers and fans. And they came to the hotel La Villa where he was staying and they, they wanted to uh, meet Gilberto to talk with him. And that's when it really hit him about the impact of who his father was outside of Cuba. Like this was the first time he really got to experience how much others so appreciated the ball player and the man that his father was. Al extremo, fue esos 20 días que estuvo en República Dominicana fueron tan apasionados en ese sentido que el hombre de la seguridad, porque siempre los equipos de Cuba va con un agente de la seguridad del Estado. El hombre me llegó a decir que no me fuera a quedar en República Dominicana. Por, y yo le dije que no, que yo me sentía revolucionario, que iba a regresar a Cuba. So he was there for 20 days, uh, staying there, and the people were just so effusive about their love and passion for Martin Diego and to meet him, and they brought him gifts, and they shared a bunch of stories with him. And during this period, there was always Cuban security guards, military personnel that accompanied the teams that traveled. And one of the guards told Gilberto, don't stay here. Um, don't think, get ideas about staying here in the Dominican Republic. And, and Gilberto said, oh, no, don't worry. I, you know, I'm, I'm very much, you know, I, I feel, you know, I'm a revolutionary. I'm, I'm, I'm part of the country of, of Cuba. I'm not going anywhere. Cuando regresé a Cuba, me di cuenta de ese impacto y comencé a investigar a Martín Diego como sujeto histórico. Y fui a la Biblioteca Nacional y empecé a sacar todos los periódicos de la época. Comencé a entrevistar eh, personas que lo conocieron, familiares, jugadores que habían estado con él en esa época, que todavía quedaban vivos. Y ahí comencé a armar este proyecto de la parte deportiva unido a mis memorias de mi padre. Y ese es el resultado de mi padre, el inmortal, que en inglés va a ser Martín Diego, mi padre, el inmortal, en inglés. My father is immortal. So, returning back to Cuba, and this is where he's sharing the story of really the, the genesis of the book project. Because he returns to Cuba, he's a, as he noted before, he's a history major. So he starts thinking about Martin Diego as a historical subject. And he goes to the library and starts getting the newspaper stories and clippings. And he goes out and he starts interviewing players who played with his father. 
and gathering all the, because many of them were still alive, and he was able to talk to them about who his father was, uh, playing in Cuba and elsewhere, and gather those stories. And that really was the start of the book. And in English, it's going to be called Martin the Eagle, My Father the Immortal. So tell me a little bit about the beginning of your father's baseball career. How did he leave Cuba and come to the United States? La pregunta es sobre si puede recontar. Uh, la, los primeros días de la carrera de Martín Diego cuando él salió de Cuba para jugar en los Estados Unidos. Bueno, eh, en realidad, venir a los Estados Unidos fue decisivo para Martín Diego, un muchacho que tenía apenas 16 años. Él, en 1923, es firmado por el Habana y automáticamente va a entrar a los Cuban Star de Pelayo Chacón pero era tal su desespero por salir que también hizo palabras con los otros que iban a estar de Abel Linares. Eh, mi abuelo, que fue sargento del ejército libertador frente a España, Benito Diego, un hombre se ganó los jalones con el machete en la mano, luchando por la libertad de, eh, y, la, y sobre todo por la, por la libertad de los esclavos, ya que su abuela, mi tatatarabuela, había sido esclava. Y Benito tenía un concepto muy claro sobre lo que podía hacer con Martín. Pero tantas personas le hablaron a Benito de las habilidades de Martín que accedió a que saliera fuera de Cuba. And so he left Cuba as a 16-year-old and Again, I'm not translating perfectly everything, but I'm going to give you the story, uh, kind of relay the story. So as a 16-year-old, 1923, he had signed with Havana, and he agreed to play with actually both Cuban Stars teams. He had agreed to play with Pelayo Chacón's team, which was based out east, and with Abel Linares' Cuban Stars team, which was based out of the Midwest, played in Chicago and Cincinnati. And finally, he turned to his grandfather to try to figure out And the, one of the notable things is that his grandfather, Benito Diego, was a soldier in the what's called the Cuban Liberation Army, the Ejército Libertador, who fought for Cuban independence in 1895, 96, 97, 98. Uh, his grandfather is very well known as one of the, the soldiers, the Mambi soldiers. Um, and uh, he also notes that his great grandmother had that they fought for the liberation of the enslaved in Cuba, that his great grandmother had been a slave. And so that Benito came to talk. Well, people talked to Benito saying, your son's really good and you have to help uh, and you have to basically give your blessing for him to go and play in the United States because he's that good. Uh, one correction was sergeant, no sergeant. Uh, he was, was a sergeant. sergeant. He was an mm -hmm. officer. He wasn't yeah. just a regular soldier. Sergeant. Because I, I tell you sergeant because he, the, the, the gra, los grados eh, se ganaban por combate. Entonces, so, ese sargento indicaba que había tenido un grado de valentía. So, Gilberto notes that Benito was a sergeant, and the way you gain your rank in the Ejército Libertador is through combat and having fought valiantly in combat. And so he had risen up the ranks and was an officer, a sergeant in that army. And so that meant he was in charge of others as well. Insisto en eso para que vean el carácter de Benito, que no era un individuo fácil. 
So he insists on making that correction because that way we know about the character of Benito the Eagle and that he's no pushover in terms of, you know, he's just going to agree to whatever anybody tells him. Right. Entonces, él finalmente viaja con eh, los que iban a estar de, de Pelayo y en esa, en esa temporada que esos equipos venían 12, 13, 14 jugadores, no más, porque se ganaba por la recolección, no por salario, sino por lo que colectaban cuando entraban los aficionados. Él tenía que jugar prácticamente todas las posiciones, no él solo, sino todos los demás jugadores jugaban una, dos, hasta tres posiciones. So Martín Diego ends up signing with the Pelayo Chacón's Cuban Stars, and it's notable here that they didn't have a salary. They were being paid by a split of the gate. And so the team only had 12 to 14 players. And like many of the other players, my thing had to play multiple positions because it was a very short roster. And so they began to play and you know what they earned was based on that gate, whatever they collected in terms of what the fans paid to see them. And that was their share. They would have to split it 12, 13, or 14 ways, depending on the number of players on a team. Entonces, jugó Sior Stop, jugó primera, jugó segunda, llegó a lanzar por el equipo, jugaba los jardines, jugó tercera, menos cache, menos cache, porque él detestaba hacer cache. Se me olvidó decir que en ese partido que yo queché, él me dijo que el, el, la posición de cache era para los güeyes, que, que nada más había quechado cuando niño, que, que yo buscara otra posición. So he said that um, Martín, and starting to play with the Cuban Stars, he played short, he played first, second pitcher, he played in the outfield, third base. The only position he didn't play was catcher. And that when Gilberto was uh, a youth playing catcher, that, uh, that Martín told him, you know, the only folks that uh, play catchers are Weyes. Hold on one second, Gilberto. Juegas como en animal o como... Es decir, animal okay. de... De, de... Oceano. Es decir, con lo que se ara, ¿no? Yeah. And so, juegas are... Um... Like a bull, ¿no? Bull, yes. Yeah. Bull, ba, ba, ya, no, no, no balls. <laughs> right. The, the, those are the only ones who play. And, and that Martín told them, find yourself another position. Don't be a catcher. Uh -huh. Esa posibilidad le dio tener una versatilidad que ya tenía. Y, y en esa temporada, los aficionados le pusieron el hombre de la suerte, porque a pesar de no tener un gran averaje ese primer año, dio los batazos que tenía que dar en los momentos de, eh, eh, decisivos. Comenzó muy mal a la ofensiva, pero después se compuso. Incluso hay crónicas de Pelayo a la prensa diciendo, elogiando el desarrollo que tuvo Martín. Quiero decir con esto, que la cantidad de juegos que hacían tanto oficiales como extraoficiales, este equipo que a veces jugaban ciento y tantos juegos, le dio una posibilidad del juego diario a Martín Digo, de cuando regresara a Cuba, ya estar más curtido, ser un pelotero diferente, porque hay que decir, la Liga de Color no era una liga fácil, era una liga difícil, complicada, y un, para un muchacho de 17 años, 16, 17 años, enfrentarse a esa realidad fue realmente la escuela que él necesitaba para impulsarse. What uh, uh, Gilberto notes is that what 
Martin Diego was able to do in 1923 in that rookie season was to exhibit the versatility that was already within his abilities, that it actually gave him that opportunity. Some of his teammates called him the man, the, the lucky guy, the man of good fortune, because he played wherever anyone else couldn't play on the field. And, and that actually gave him the opportunity to develop that Pelayo Chacon described the development of, um, of Martin Diego in his versatility and playing every day. And that this was, the Negro Leagues was not an easy league. You know, the travel was difficult. The level of play was high and he was just 16 years old. And what better school to, of training could someone have than what Martin Diego had in that 1923 season? Because he was playing every day, he was filling every slot in the uh, field. And that when he came back to Cuba, he was such a better player because now he had this experience of basically playing anywhere and everywhere and excelling. Mira, aquí te vale una nota que se escribió en 1923, eh, que aparece en el libro, del Heraldo de Cuba. Y es lo que dice Pelayo. Dice Pelayo que este era uno de los que había con claridad la facultad de pitcher de Diego y por eso cierto día que los mejores lanzadores del club habían hecho explosión, Pompez decidió complacer a Pelayo poniendo al paisano de Drake y Boada, son dos jugadores de pelota de esa época, en la línea de fuego. So uh, he shared a, a quote from the, the Herald, the Cuban Herald, it was in Spanish, Heraldo de Cuba, um, from November 20th, 1923, which would describes um, the development and the abilities of Martin um, on the mound, where Pelayo Chacón convinced Alex Pompez to put Valentin Drake and also um, Martin on to take their turns on the mound. Entonces, los contrarios aseguraban que De Higo, porque así pronunciaban el apellido en Estados Unidos, De Higo, eh, no tenía nada. Pero el hecho cierto y negable fue que no pudieron batearle más que un hit. En otra ocasión, en el Lincoln Giant, pulverizó a otro pitcher regular de los que iban a estar en el inning de apertura anotándole cinco carreras en menos tiempo que el necesario para hacer historia. So the other people on uh, the opposing team had said that uh, that Diego had nothing and yet they could only get one hit off him while he was pitching. <laughs> <laughs> and and the following pitcher that that the Cuban Stars uh, put in, they scored five runs off. So there we begin to see an indication of the ability And again, it was only 16 years old. This is part of what, to me, was so fascinating. Um, now I'm editorializing from my own research for Cuban Star. You know, mm -hmm. you have a 16-year-old Martin Diego just excelling in the Negro Leagues against this type flight competition. I mean, he was pitching against the Pittsburgh Crawfords and playing against the, the Crawfords and the other great teams of the Negro Leagues during this period. It's it's amazing. Adrian, could I ask you just to give us a, a brief summary of Alex Pompez's career? Because uh, I know you've written a book about him and he's another Hall of Famer whose uh, career intersects with Dijigos. Sure. Um, so Alejandro Pompez, Alex Pompez was born in uh, Key West, Florida, grew up in Tampa, but comes to Harlem in 1910 as a 20-year-old. And he loved baseball. And one of the first things he helps to do is to uh, form a uh, team called the Cuban Stars. And in the book, Cuban Star, um, How One Negro League Owner Changed the Face of Baseball, I talk about his uh, showdown with the Bellinaris over the team. But in 1923, he was, during the wintertime, 
he went down to Cuba and he actually saw Martin de Eagle playing and he sought to convince and Pelayo Chacon was the manager of the team. And so they you know, wanted to get de Eagle to come and they were successful in, in bringing him in. So one of the really interesting things for me, and this is what a scout, uh, John Crick noted this, that a lot of the players that Alex Bompez really liked were very similar to Martin de Eagle, long limbs, the the kind of sinewy build tall with with um ability to run and really um have multiple tools and so the ego would go from being one of his players to the manager of the cuban stars on multiple occasions just like he would manage in the mexican league in the cuban league in the in the venezuelan league and so I, you know alice Pompez and the career of Martin Diego kind of in the Negro Leagues are parallel tracks about um, the ability to have such greatness uh, come out of Cuba and then even expand beyond Cuba. This is really the story of the Cuban stars and the story of Diego. It's about going not just to the United States, but throughout the Caribbean world and Latin American baseball world and having an impact. Quiero agregar algo a lo que dijiste de Pompez, que además de eso, Pompez es el hombre que introduce a los jugadores latinoamericanos en la liga de los Estados Unidos, en la liga negra, no solamente los cubanos. Tetelo Vargas fue uno de los jugadores de República Dominicana. Pancho Coimbre de Puerto Rico también integró los que iban a estar. Es decir, que tanto Pelayo como Alex tuvieron esa visión de llevar al jugador latinoamericano a tierra de Estados Unidos. Ellos dos, porque el otro equipo desapareció, que era el de Abel Linares, que fue dueño del equipo de Habana y Almendares. Pero con el tiempo, ese, ese equipo que jugaba en el oeste, eh, jugaba incluso también iban blancos. Pero en la Liga del Este solamente jugaban negros y eran negros latinoamericanos. So, um, Gilberto adds that one of the really important contributions of Alex Pompez and Pelayo Chacón was they really brought into the Negro Leagues in the United States players from beyond Cuba. We had Tetelo Vargas, a great outfielder who was from the Dominican Republic. Uh, Pancho Corimbe, a great hitter from Puerto Rico who actually went a whole season in the Puerto Rican League without striking out one time um, and hit over 400 that season. And you had players and, you know, this is in contrast to Abel Linares' team. Abel, who in... Um, in the Cuban League, own on Mendares and Havana, the two of the biggest teams. Um, but his team played primarily in the Midwest and included white Cubans that were playing in the Negro Leagues. Bompez's contribution was that he brought black Latino players from throughout the Caribbean into the Negro Leagues and really expanded the game that way. And of course, Dijico is in five halls of fame, the U.S., the Mexican, Venezuelan, Cuban, Dominican halls of fame. And Adrian, was it very common for players as Dijico did to go from country to country and league to league? And I know that Martin played in independent leagues as well as in the Negro League. So just to make ends meet, to make money, was it very typical for players to be globetrotters in that way? Um, the very best... Latino players could become globetrotters and play in the top leagues, you know, because the Mexican league during the 1930s and 1940s 
They had the top talent throughout Latin America. They recruited the top talent that they could out of the Negro Leagues. This is where you, you see Monty Irving and Roy Campanella and Satchel and Josh. All those guys are coming. And they're also getting Martin the Eagle. They're also getting white Cubans away from the major leagues to come and play in Mexico. So that was really, I would argue, during that period of time, as close to a major league you're going to get without being MLB outside of the Negro Leagues. And so... We see a number of, of talented ballplayers. Luis Rodriguez Olmo, who had played outfield for the Brooklyn Dodgers for several years, goes down to Mexico during this period and the, the war period in particular, World War II time. And you know, this is where you also see Martin Diego have the opportunity to be a manager. And one of the fascinating stories that I think sometimes we don't get enough appreciation for is that in the Mexican League, in Venezuela, in a couple of these other leagues, the ego managed a team that was basically integrated. In the eyes of people in the United States, if that team played in the US league, it would be seen as integrated because you had light-skinned Cubans, darker-skinned Puerto Ricans and Cubans and Dominicans and Mexicans all playing together. And he was the manager. And one of the important things about that story is that these men had the experience of managing integrated clubs that if when major league integration happened, they could have been brought along. I and mean, you could have had someone like a Martin Diego managing a team in Major League Baseball. But Major League Baseball was slow to do that. Quiero agregar algo a lo que tú dices, que Martin Diego fue la primera figura importante que tuvo la Liga Mexicana. Es decir, los, eh, hay que recordar que esta Liga Mexicana no hubiera funcionado si no hubiera sido por el dinero de Jorge Pasquel al que no se le da el suficiente mérito. Pasquel comenzó una guerra contra las grandes ligas, contratando a peloteros de grandes ligas con salarios que no ganaban en grandes ligas. Más Lanier, Mickey Owens, eh, esos jugadores fueron para México. Es más, el patón Carrasquel, venezolano lanzador, desechó un contrato en grandes ligas para ir a jugar a la liga mexicana. So Gilberto reminds us that Martin Diego was really the first big star, the marquee signing of Jorge Pascual that really gave the project of the Mexican League standing. And then that Pascual doesn't get enough credit because Pascual is able to recruit Hal Lanier, Mickey Owens, other white major league players to come down and play at salaries that were beyond what they were earning in the United States, in the major leagues. And that pitcher like uh, his nickname was El Paton, Alejandro Carrascal, Carrascal from the Washington Senators, was recruited down to play in the Mexican League again, earning much more there than what he had earned in the major leagues. And that's what attracted top flight ball players from the United States and from across Latin America to play in a racially integrated Mexican League. But the first guy that really set that whole thing off was getting Martin Diego to come. Es, pa, es Pasquel, no Pascual, Pas, Pasquel. Pasquel. Pasquel, es Pasquel. Eh, Pasquel eh, creó incluso eh, las grandes hazañas de Martín Diego se hacen en, en México. Me, eh, cuando él llega a, a México, a Veracruz, eh, había una multitud esperando y él pensaba que venía alguna figura y lo estaban esperando a él y lo llevaron cargado hasta la alcaldía, los aficionados mexicanos. Y a partir de ahí comenzó récords. Eh, tiene 6-6, fue el primero que dio el no-hit-no-run en México. 
En fin, tiene una serie de, de plusmarcas en México que tiene Martín Diego, que fue el primero de todos que firmó Pasquel, que llegó a México y elevó la, la liga a niveles que antes no tenía. Luego vinieron los demás, pero Martín Diego fue la primera figura. So Gilberto reminds me that it's Pasquel because Pascual would be like Camilo Pascual, totally different last name. Pascual uh, was the one who brought in Diego and that the welcome that Martin Diego received was so amazing and big. He arrives, he's, he, he signs with Veracruz and he was stunned when he gets there because there's such a crowd there. And they basically carry Martin Diego on their shoulder to City Hall in Veracruz. And, and he's like, at first when he saw the crowd, he's like, you know, some superstar, some big figure must be arriving. He didn't realize that that welcome was for him. And so they bring him to City Hall. And he, of course he has this amazing year and, and career in Mexican League. He threw the first no hitter in the Mexican League. And he would just have, you know, this series of success as a player and as a manager. At the, I mean, he was a player manager for Veracruz. And so, you know, that is part of his legacy in the Mexican League. Did he have a favorite place to play? Did he prefer to play at home? Because I imagine when he played in the United States, he had to face more discrimination, more segregation. So how did he feel about the conditions that he faced there? Um, la pregunta es sobre si Martín Diego tenía un lugar favorito de jugar, una nación donde prefirió jugar. Y también, la uh, segunda pregunta es, su, es, los pensamientos de Martín Diego sobre jugando en los Estados Unidos durante esa época, época cuando tenía esa línea de color y eh, eh, la segregación racial. Sí, sí, yo, ent yo, entendí, yo entendí la pregunta. En primer lugar, el equipo que siempre, siempre amó, que le dicho por él, que le quedó en el corazón, fue el equipo Unión Laguna de Torreón donde él ganó en 1942. De hecho, yo comencé un programa por YouTube que se llama eh, Martín Digo, su fundación. Y tengo una sección que recuerda los 80 años, que va a ser el año que viene, donde el equipo Torreón ganó. Ese equipo fue el equipo, dicho por él en sus propias memorias, que le quedó en el corazón. Equipo donde fue manager y jugador, pichaba y jugaba a los jardines, So the first team that he mentions that kind of won his heart as a special place in Martin Diego's heart was La Unión de Tarrion, uh, the team from Tarrion. And Torreon, Torreon. Oh, Torreon. Torreon. And so that was his the place where he had his first uh, managing player manager, won the championship, and it just kept a special place in his heart for what he achieved there. La segunda pregunta, eh, eh, sí, él odiaba el racismo. De hecho, él consideraba que las ligas negras era un asalto por, eh, en lo tocante a, a todas las necesidades que pasaban los jugadores eh, negros en esa época, en esa liga donde, bueno, solamente la liga negra comenzó a ganar un poco más después de los 30, casi en los 40. Pero esos primeros años que él fue, eh, le negaban el agua, eh, no podían comer en los restaurantes. Muchas veces tenían que dormir en las iglesias o en el propio ómnibus. 
él, él recibió el racismo en el pecho y lo detestaba. Además, Martín Díaz siempre fue un hombre de ideas sociales liberales inculcadas precisamente por su padre, por, su, por mi abuelo Benito Díaz, un hombre de ideas libertarias. Y, y eso lo condujo en un momento determinado a simpatizar con el Partido Socialista Popular. Es decir, que mi, eh, Martín Diego tenía una idea clara sobre la que era la justicia y así se pronunciaba, a diferencia de otros jugadores que solamente estaban en el deporte. Él tenía visión de lucha social. So, Martín Diego hated racism. He felt that the Negro Leagues were a hardship because of how the players had to deal with being refused water, being refused places to stay, having to stay you know, at other Negro Leaguers players, you know, in, in, um, in funeral homes, wherever they can find a place to stay, not being allowed to stay in hotels. And that those things, his antipathy for racism was really taught to him by um, his father, Benito, Diego, those ideas about um, those social ideas about justice, about liberation. This was at the core of what his father, Benito Diego, had fought for in Cuba as part of the Cuban Liberation Army. And that this is part of what really motivated Martin Diego to join the Socialist Party in terms because they fought for a vision about treating everyone equally that was what he had learned from his own father and what his father had you know, sought to teach everyone. And so while he is uh, encountering this racism and resistance, he is becoming a, a better and better baseball player. And you told us about the beginning of his career and how he was so versatile and a great pitcher. But I know that he soon became one of the best hitters in the Negro Leagues, and he worked on hitting the curveball until he was great at that too. So ultimately... How would you sort of summarize his greatness as a player, you know, as a pitcher compared to as a hitter? And uh, where was he best on the field? Ya usted uh, explicó lo, los primeros días de su carrera jugando en los Estados Unidos. Y como puede hablar sobre cómo él uh, aprendió ser un bateador tremendo. Y también sobre jugando como el superestrella, siendo aquí en los Estados Unidos y los diferentes ligas, puede darnos una, un sumario de su, su, la carrera de Martín Diego. Bueno, mi memoria no es tan buena para hacer un, un sumario así en, en, en términos generales. Pero eh, yo digo que Martín Diego, salvando la diferencia, fue el Mozart del béisbol. Eh, tú no puedes significar que hay personas que vienen con una genialidad inherente a ellos mismos. Mozart a los ocho años eh, 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 hizo su primer concierto y así sucesivamente vemos niños que son talentosos y uno no entiende cómo puede tener ese talento. Martín Diego de, de niño jugaba béisbol. Ya a los once años jugaba con, con jugadores mayores que él. Es decir que esa genialidad del béisbol él la tenía inherente. Muchas eh, personas decían que cuando él salía, él tenía una oriola que se notaba enseguida, que era, salvando también la distancia, como un torero, como un matador. Se le veía en el uniforme. Eso eh, es inexplicable. 
decir cómo adquirió ese, ese talento, porque el talento lo tenía. Ahora, el talento lo fue llevando a, a esculpir gracias que jugaba en todas partes de lo que era la América Beisbolera. So, first, uh, Gilberto says, his memory's not so great to provide a grand summary of all of the achievements <laughs> yes. and everything. Um, but he notes that a lot of this was present early on in, in uh, Martin Eagle's childhood. He was naturally talented at so many things. At eight years old, he played his first concert. Um, and that by 11 years old, he was playing with much older players. And it was just this natural ability, but also this personality that he carried himself like a matador with this dignity, the way he carried it, it, it he appeared in uniform. He just, it, it, it almost seemed this is just his way of being and, and what really uh, stood out as he continued throughout his career was just that the, the mannerism of how he carried himself as a person, as a ball player, just stood through. You know, it's interesting, now I'm editorializing again, that, um, so Gilberto was journalist for many years. Uh, Martin was a professor of accounting for many years. The other son, I should say, um, that I know, um, that both of them actually continued kind of this very dignified personas of, you know, very respectable. And that some people talked about Martin Diego as, you know, El Inmortal is not just like the immortal player, but the, just the way his way of being was so respectful and dignified. And that he also not just portrayed that, but it almost radiated from and onto others. And so that the whole team would take on his persona. Mira, yo recuerdo que él con más de 50 años, yo me ponía a verlo, eh, se hacían equipos donde él era entrenador entre muchachos jóvenes y los entrenadores. Él no corría mucho y él me puso a mí de corredor emergente. Yo corría por él y yo le, le vi dar unos batazos a muchachos eh, pitchers. Claro, no eran profesionales, pero eran jo más jóvenes. Eh, yo le di un batazo de jonrón que se llevó el te otro terreno y cayó en la calle con más de 50 años. Es decir, con, sin entrenamiento prácticamente, eh, todavía tenía la habilidad. He, he, he recalls that when Martin was over 50 years old um, and he was working as a coach, training young players um, who, who were, you know, later years in their teen years, you know, developed players. They weren't professional yet, but very good players. And Gilberto would sometimes be the runner for him. The um, um, And Martin would hit. and But Martin would hit these long home runs. These batazos are like these blasts. And they would leave the ballpark where they're playing and carry over to the second field behind there, you know, over that fence too. And, and you know, it, it was an amazing thing because he, he wasn't doing it with like, you know, taking regular batting practice. He would just step back in there, face these young pitchers and just blast away. Pero un breve sumario de su carrera, vemos que tuvo resultados en Cuba, resultados increíbles de dar, dar eh, ser líderes de los bateadores y líder de los lanzadores. En más educación fue líder en diferentes departamentos. Eh, si vamos a México, también fue en un momento líder de los bateadores y líder de los lanzadores. Si vamos a Venezuela, donde jugó con el equipo Concordia, creó eh, ese equipo Concordia, eh, fue un equipo que prácticamente fue eh, el anticipo de lo que era la Serie del Caribe, porque ese equipo jugaba en diferentes países 
de América Latina beisbolera. Y ahí también tiene números también sobresalientes. If to give a brief summary of kind of the overall um, accomplishments um, of Martin Diego is that when we look at his his stats, his records in Cuba, he was consistently ranked among the, the hitting leaders the, and in various categories. And then you would look the same season at the pitching leaders and there you find again, Martin Diego, both right. regular uh, in terms of regular season and then even in career wise. And you go to the stats in Mexico and again, you see Martin Diego listed among the hitting leaders, home runs and average and pitching leaders and wins and ERA. And that he also played in Venezuela with the Concordia team. And this was before the Caribbean World Series was um, put together. But the Concordia team would travel out of Venezuela and play the top teams in Cuba, in the Dominican Republic, in Puerto Rico and in Mexico. So, you know, he was competing again at that elite level throughout the Caribbean world and again, setting a standard for everyone. Is there anything that you'd care to add to that, Adrian, from your own research and knowledge of the Negro Leagues and Caribbean Leagues of, of sort of where he stacks up to the other legends and, and just how impressive his uh, two-way performance was? So in, in doing research on the New York Cubans and the Cuban stars that Alex Pompez uh, operated out of New York, you have a young Martin Diego, 18, 19 years old, competing for the home run record of the Negro Leagues with you know 25 30 year old sluggers you know the the best and and in talking to a, a few of the players i interviewed over the years who who witnessed martin diego play you know is that he, he hit these the, he hit the ball hard and they were like line drive bombs you know that were just legendary in how quickly they left the ballpark you know today we will have velo speed and he would definitely be a high velo guy <laughs> and the the other thing was he very much was someone who was very confident in his abilities and so there is this epic series between the pittsburgh crawfords and the new york cubans where it goes down to the seventh game and my Dean puts himself in the pitch to try to close out this series. Unfortunately, the New York Cubans lose to the Pittsburgh Crawfords, but it is again, one of the epic battles of the Negro Leagues that anyone who appreciates the history of the Negro Leagues know that these were the elite players of black baseball gathered together. And for me to understand how Martin, I mean, he, it's mind-boggling to have today people talk about Shohei Otani and they're like amazed at his ability this was Martin Diego was playing shortstop regularly he would play center field he would play you know he would pitch he would take his turn at the bat and was constantly among the league leaders in hitting and for power but he didn't have one position that throughout mm -hmm. his career, he was constantly moving around as it best suited the team that day. And the ability to excel, you know, Otani, he's in right field, he's on the mound, he's DHing. He's not going to take a turn at second base, at short, at, maybe he might in center field, but the ego was. And he was doing that at such a level that the other teams always planned around where is the ego? Is he going to be on the mound today? Is he going to be batting third, fourth, fifth? Like where, like you have the game plan around Martin Diego and, and that, and, and that he did that into his forties, mm -hmm. you know, yeah, 
the the love he had for the game was amazing. And I'll share one other story because I did research in the uh, regional archives in Sanfuegos and someone who is a historian, I have never had the opportunity to watch Martin Diego play. There is no video of him playing. You got the oral history of players who saw him play. But what I did get to see in the uh, municipal archives in Sanfuegos was a letter of Martin Diego when he was uh, serving in the Cuban um, uh, Ministry of Sport. And it was him advocating for more equipment, more materials to help the youth in uh, Villa Clara, which uh, becomes absorbed into the uh, province of San Fuegos. And I actually got to see, it was, it was um, typewritten, but at the bottom, hand signed Martin Diego's signature. And as a historian, that's one of those things like, so I never got to see him play. But I got to see his handwriting. <laughs> él, él, además de eso, quiero, quiero apuntar algo que tú dijiste ahí sobre el, el New York Cuban. Esa, la serie mundial que jugó contra, para decidir, esa fue su gran decepción, porque Charleston ya faltaba prácticamente un inning y Charleston le dio un jonrón, empataron el juego y luego perdió. Ese ha sido, fue su gran dolor no haber ganado porque se confió. Charleston, que además, Oscar Charleston, que además está en el Salón de la Fama. Eh, y cuando tú miras esa Liga Negra, eh, donde jugó Martín Dío, como tú bien dices, no solamente eran mayores que él, sino que la gran mayoría de esos jugadores están en el Salón de la Fama. Bull Leonard, Oscar Charleston, eh, Page Y con todos ellos, el único latino que se medía de igual a igual en la lomita Frente a esos lanzadores, esos jugadores, fue Martín Diego. So, um, Gilberto brings us back to that 1935 series between the Pittsburgh Crawfords and the New York Cubans to note that Diego's one lament it, it, it was, so he was on the mound in the eighth inning of that final game of the seven-game series, and Oscar Charleston hits a home run off him that ties it up, and then they lose it in the ninth inning to the Pittsburgh Crawfords. Now, this is what Gilberto wants us to remember, that Pittsburgh had Oscar Charleston, Buck Leonard, Satchel Page on that team. You had a number of guys who end up from that 35 squad in the Baseball Hall of Fame. Who's the one who basically is able to take the mound and pitch against them and take, you know, step into the batter box and compete on that level? It's Martin Diego on the mound and in the batter's box, competing Hall of Fame, first group of Negro Leaguers into the Hall of Fame caliber player. And, you know, that is part, part of the reason why when that Veterans Committee in Cooperstown, the Negro League Committee, when they were putting people into the Hall of Fame, and Cool Papa gets in, and Charleston, and Buck Leonard, and Martin Diego is the only Latino player who's included, but because it was also he competed at that level with all of them. Pero además sabemos que los afroamericanos no son muy fáciles de elogiar a otro, sobre todo a otro que no fuera igual de eh, estadounidense. Y sin embargo, Papa Cool, Bull Leonard, todos ellos hablan elogiosamente de Martin Diego en sus memorias. And he also says um, that, you know, of these great players, like many of them don't just loud the, the, the greatness of other players. These African-American greats like Cole Papa Bell and Buck Leonard and Charleston, they all talk glowingly about 
Martin Diego. Like they they all just glowed about his talent and his abilities that that he played um, when he was playing against them. Gilberto, I don't know whether you have uh, watched Otani's career, but I wonder whether that makes you think that we might see another player who could come along and do what your father did, or will we never see it again because uh, he just did everything so well that it can't be replicated? Entonces, pregunta si has tenido la oportunidad de ver eh, eh, jugador Shohei Otani, su carrera, y, y viendo cómo él juega. Si es posible que vamos a ver otro pelotero como Martín Diego, o es algo que nunca jamás vamos a ver alguien que puede jugar como Martín. Es difícil en la actualidad que exista, no por el talento, porque puede tener el talento, pero no la oportunidad. Eh, el talento tal vez lo tenga, pero en grandes ligas es prácticamente imposible mm. que alguien pueda jugar las nueve posiciones que alguien pueda pichar hoy en día nueve innings, como pichaba Martín Digo, y que alguien pueda además pichar, salir del pitcher y jugar otra posición. No digo que pueda, alguien pueda tener ese talento, pero no va a tener la oportunidad. Y Martín Digo, por la coyuntura histórica que vivió, tuvo esa oportunidad. Alguien, y, y cuando tú miras, hay otros peloteros eh, que también, Baby Ruth fue pitcher. Y después jugó primera. Joe, Joe Bullet, eh, eh, ahora no recuerdo el apellido, ayúdame en eso, Adrián. Joe Bullet. Bullet Rogan. Esa Ajá, también fue pitcher. Eh, Lázaro Salazar, el cubano, pichaba y jugaba otra posición. Es decir, pero eso eran por necesidad y la posibilidad que tuvieron en esa época. So. He says it's difficult, not because players lack the talent. There are players who have the talent to be a pitcher and a, and a leading hitter, but the opportunity today's game is not there. Mm -hmm. The chance to pitch nine innings and then play, you know, go to another position and keep playing the next day. They may have the talent, but it's the opportunity. Martin Diego played in an era where he had the opportunity to go and excel in on the mound and be, you know, next day center field or whatever other position he was going to play. And that there were other players in Martin Diego's era, like Babe Ruth, who was a, a, a pitcher. And then he, he became a right fielder with the Yankees and Bullet Joe Rogan, who was a, a, a pitcher and then took other uh, opportunities in the field. And there was another Cuban player, Lázaro Salazar, who was a pitcher um, and then also was a everyday player as well. It's not that Martin Diego had a different level of talent that no one else would be able to have that talent. It's, a, it's really hard in this day and era for a player to have the opportunity to do what Martin did during his era. And he was so good at pitching and hitting, playing all over the field. Do you know if he had a favorite? Did he prefer to pitch or hit or a favorite position? And also, do you know if he had any special routine to maintain himself so that he could do all those things, so that he could pitch one day and then play in the field the next day without hurting himself or being fatigued? La pregunta es sobre si Martín Tigo tenía una posición que era su favorito de jugar y tal vez si él tenía una rutina de cómo entrenarse 
para mantenerse jugando hasta estaba en los cuarentas. Bueno, eh, la posición que él, además de, de lanzado, pero que le encantaba y es la que le digo a mi hijo, además, mi hijo de, de 13 años que está jugando béisbol, que le digo que esa es la posición que él debe jugar, es la de Centenfield. Eh, ¿Por qué? Porque en los off-field hay menos preocupación para batear. Solamente hay que tener buen brazo y saber capturar los fly. No es lo mismo que cuando tú juegas en el infield, que tienes más responsabilidades de cubrir la base, hacer los doble play. El outfield, los, los jugadores outfield saben que tienen que solamente batear. Esa es su posición y saber capturar los fly, ser rápido y tener buen brazo según el, el outfield que jugaba. A él le gustaba eh, ser centerfield. So his favorite position, in addition to be a pitcher, on the field, and one that Aguimentos on Sun plays currently, is playing center field. That one really just has to concern themselves with catching the fly, you have a good arm, but that, you know, it's not all the responsibilities that you constantly have to think about in the field when you're an infielder, in terms of, you know, what plays and, and runners and all that, that you can really, you know, be a really good outfielder, but you know, focus a bit more thinking about your bats and, and without those responsibilities of the, the infielder. So yes, yeah, center field was the position that Martin Diego enjoyed. ¿Y sobre la rutina? La rutina era la misma que tenían todos aquellos jugadores. Eh, es decir, eh, Ramón Bragaña, Cocaína García, eh, Lázaro Salazar. Cuando tú miras, no solamente a Martín Diego, por eso en mi programa trato de de que en el programa de Martín Diego su fundación, los aficionados conozcan a estas personas, a estos jugadores que pichaban hoy y dentro de dos días pichaba. Martín Diego no era una excepción, era la regla de lo que ocurría en aquella época. Ellos cuando terminaban, si, si, primero cuando entraban a pichar sabía que eran nueve innings. Si explotaba, muchos de ellos lo que hacían era seguir pichando la cantidad de lanzamiento que tenían que hacer para eh, no, no dejar de, de hacer lo, la cantidad de lanzamientos. Eso sí salía, pero en el caso de Diego, muchas veces salía de pitcher y entraba en el Sion. Pero los otros, por ejemplo, eh, Conrado Marrero, eh, que jugó con los senadores de Washington. Martín de Eagles routine was the same as other guys like Ramón Bagaña, Cocaína García, Lázaro Salazar. They knew if they were going to be on the mound, they're going to pitch nine innings. And that they're also every two, three days, they're going to be on the mound pitching. And that their goal, their their mindset was nine in, innings every time. If they got, they started getting hit hard, that they would focus on a pitch, uh, throwing pitches that won't take a lot out of the arm and just get through. And so the difference was is that Diego, you know, if he, sometimes if he got hit hard, he'd go from the mound to short or to center field, you know, he would actually sometimes pitch less than the nine innings and just go to another position. Number of these other guys, they knew they had to take the nine innings. And so he started to talk a, a bit about Connie Marrero. And Marrero me dijo que, por ejemplo, cuando iba al cine, había aire acondicionado, él ponía el brazo con un abrigo para que el frío no lo afectara. Y cuando dormía, trataba de no dormir sobre su brazo. Hmm. Martín Diego, por ejemplo, eh, era un hombre que independientemente de eso, hacía las jugadas difíciles, la hacía fácil por el talento que, ten, que tenía. Muchos eh, viejos aficionados me decían que había veces que le chiflaban 
Pero para otro jugador que era súper difícil, por ejemplo, agarrar en el, en, en el cielo, en el hueco, él lo hacía fácil. Era un hombre de seis pies y pico. Es decir, estamos hablando un Sior Store de aquella época jugando Sior con el alcance que tenía. Le llegaba a tazos que otro Sior no le llegaba. Y así en primera, así en los jardines. Es decir, el talento que tenía lo ayudaba en muchas ocasiones a suplir determinada jugada. Pero ellos se preparaban con muy poco tiempo para poder cumplir los compromisos porque salían de un país y se iban para otro. Uh, he shares a story about Connie Marrero that Connie Marrero told him that um, you know, he would go, for example, if he went to the movie theater, he would always have a jacket on his, on his pitching arm so that it would never get cold, so that it would stay warm and loose. Um, he never pitched on his sleeping arm. He would, you know, on his back or on the other side so that, you know, his arm was always ready. Now, he also notes how with Martin de Ego, you had, like, there, there's an expression about, like, making all the plays look easy. And he had this ability because he was six feet tall. He was over six feet tall. And back then, you didn't have many shortstops that were over six feet tall. So he had to reach. He was the ability to to make plays that others couldn't. And it was the same thing at first base or in center field. He he stood out because of his height. Um, and uh, he would keep a training regimen of always being ready to play because these guys pretty much traveled all year round playing the game. And they, you know, that was their livelihood. That's what they had to keep in physical shape to be ready to play throughout the year. Y otra cosa, Adrián, que es bueno anotar de estos titanes, porque hay que llamarlos así, son gigantes estos jugadores de esa época no había medicina deportiva <risa> es decir, si lesionaban, ellos mismos tenían que buscar remedios caseros mi papá tenía un remedio, por ejemplo de ponerse, cuando terminaba se ponía el brazo con una toalla caliente, para mantener el brazo caliente eh, se ponía a veces tabaco también en el brazo, tabaco unían el tabaco que era caliente y se lo ponían también en el brazo y eso les resultaba cuando tú ves los line up de los equipos en diferentes países, el mismo tipo que estaba en La Habana lo veía después en la Liga Negra y después lo veías en México y tú decías oh my god, what happened this? <laughs> how is possible? So, Gilberto um, notes that you, know, you have these titans of baseball You know, just superstar players and that they had to keep themselves fit. They had to figure out how to take care of themselves. There wasn't sports medicine back then. Um, and most teams didn't have a team doctor. They didn't have a trainer and the players had to figure out for themselves. Uh, so my team, you know, one of his remedies was always having this hot towel on his on his throwing arm to, to make sure it stays loose. Sometimes he would put tobacco on it because it will burn and it will kind of, you know, probably works a little bit like icy hot uh, to keep the arm loose. And, and that these guys would face each other in Cuba, then they play against each other in the Negro Leagues and they go down to Mexico and they would play and they would see each other. It's like, oh my God, there he is again, you know? And that they're playing year round and they're playing at that high level. And so, but they had to figure it out for themselves. There wasn't the, the advantage that current players do have in really having sports medicine. And, you know, today we have coaches that, that specialize in keeping, you know, conditioning that they had to do it for themselves. Uh -huh. Sacha Spey dice en su memoria que se echaba grasa de serpiente 
en el brazo para poder pichar. Es otro ejemplo que pichaba hoy, pichaba mañana y pichaba pasado. Entonces tú comprendes que esta gente tenía otra visión diferente a los peloteros de hoy en día. So he talks about Satchel Paige, who uh, used what called a serpent oil, a serpent grease, and put it on his arm to to stay loose because he'll pitch today and he'll pitch tomorrow in another city and, and pitch the, the third day in a row and just travel. And that these players had to find their own uh, remedies and, and ways of being always prepared to play during that era. Y tú sabes cuál es la motivación que si no jugaban no ganaban dinero tan fácil como eso. Si no jugaban, no van a ir. A diferencia de hoy, que tienen contratos, se lesionan, y no estoy criticando, ¿eh? pero se lesionan, tienen cualquier lesión y no juegan más. So he, he notes, like, what was their motivation? You don't play, you don't get paid. Mm -hmm. And so you, you have to play in order to get paid. And so that's, you know, why they figured out all these ways. And not to criticize today's players, they didn't have contracts back then. That, you know, a salary that took care of them. That today they have a salary and they can, you know, take care of their bodies a different way. But back then, you got to play in order to get paid. Okay, well, before we go, Adrian, I, I guess I'll, I'll ask you, is there anything that we haven't touched on that you would want people to know about Dihiko, either his career or who he was as a person or as a player or the larger legacy of Latino players in the Negro Leagues and beyond in the days when the color barrier was still in effect? Martin Diego had a profound impact on Latino players, particularly players like Orestes Minoso, as he was known in Cuba before he became Mini Minoso here. Mini Minoso writes all the time uh, as a youth that how he looked up to Martin Diego, he played for him, and that this was a role model, that Martin Diego was a role model for many Afro-Cuban players because of how he played and how he carried himself. That was just like the standard. And the best comparative person, I would say, to have that kind of prolific impact on a group of players is Roberto Clemente. That people want to live up to how Clemente stood as a figure. This was Martin Diego, particularly within black baseball circles during the era of the color line. He was not just a great player. They saw him as the kind of person they want to learn how to behave like, how to carry themselves like. The consummate professional, the consummate person who cared about the other guy to make sure that all the players on the team were taken care of. And that we often lose sight of because we focus so much on the versatility of Martin Diego on the, the, and, and the versatility going from not just being a player, but also being a manager and losing sight that as an individual person, he really had an impact on generations of Cuban players and other Negro League players because of how he carried himself in terms of his personality. And Gilberto, do you have any last thoughts uh, on your father as a player, as a person, anything that we have not talked about today? Algún pensamientos uh, sobre su papá como persona que no hemos uh, hablado hasta ahora. Si quiere, unos pensamientos al final para este programa. Eh, te escuché hablando de Clemente, que, que también fue un, un gran jugador y un hombre altruista. Porque hay que recordar que Clemente perdió la vida tratando de ayudar a otras personas. Eh, salvando esa distancia, Martín Diego también fue otro jugador altruista. 
eh, en mi, yo he tenido la posibilidad de seguir los pasos que las huellas de mi padre en ese sentido. Yo viví en México, él jugó en México. Yo fui corresponsal de un periódico en Venezuela, estuve en Venezuela, Puerto Rico ni hablar todas las veces que estuve y finalmente en Estados Unidos. Es decir, que de una manera u otra yo he seguido esa huella y he encontrado personas de diferentes nacionalidades que me hablaron del altruismo de Martín Diego. Martín Diego creó una asociación de jóvenes en México, masones, para su desarrollo con su dinero. Gilberto notes that when I was talking about Clemente and his altruism, that, yeah, he recalls, you know, that his father, Martín Diego, was also an altruistic person and that Gilberto has had the opportunity to kind of follow in his father's footsteps in working in Mexico and working in Venezuela and being in, uh, traveling to Puerto Rico and now uh, living in the United States. And that wherever uh, Gilberto has lived and traveled, he's heard others talking about his father's altruism, his, his philanthropic endeavors. And that, um, for example, in Mexico, that Martin Diego had founded a, an organization for Mexican youth down there out of his own money. And I would add, remember, these guys weren't earning a lot of money. So right. to, to, you know, to, save and to uh, create a found uh, an organization to help others was really ahead of his time and, and an important uh, sign of the altruism and how Martin Diego was very much interested in helping others, not just on the playing field by entertaining them, but beyond the playing field. Eh, se me olvida la República Dominicana que si mi esposa me escucha me mata porque estoy casado con una dominicana. Es decir, yo, yo viví en México, viví en, vivo en los Estados Unidos y viví en República Dominicana. So, Gilberto notes that he forgot to mention the Dominican Republic and that he needs to be sure to mention it because his wife is from the Dominican Republic and if he doesn't, he might have some trouble at home. So, but that, you know, again, there's another place that Martín Diego had a profound impact upon And so the legacy that way lives on. Entonces, en todos estos países, siempre me encontré personas que me hablaban de su generosidad. En México encontré un señor ya mayor que cuando niño, él, ese señor que era niño, mi papá le pagó la matrícula, la, la matrícula de la escuela. Eh, y así sucesivamente te, tenía. Y una de las cosas que, que fue para Cuba, es decir, regresó a Cuba cuando triunfó la revolución de Castro, fue porque creía que era una revolución que iba a cambiar una con el racismo y otra iba a dar un paso democrático. Eh, es decir, mi papá no fue comunista, fue socialista. Y ya atrapado ahí, ya no salió. Pero ahí te das cuenta de esa visión humana que tuvo Martín Diego y es lo que trato de reflejar en el libro. Eh, dicho sea de paso, también hice otro libro que se llama Estrellas por Siempre con 40 semblanzas de 40 peloteros de esa época porque es necesario que los aficionados de América Latina, porque están en español, tal vez lo pongan en inglés, conozcan no solamente a Martín Diego, sino a todos estos jugadores que hicieron una época y abrieron las rutas del béisbol latinoamericano. So 
in everywhere that Hiberto uh, has lived and traveled to, in all these countries, they talk of Matindigo's generosity. Uh, he recalls uh, meeting an older person, older man, when Gilberto met him, who knew Martin as a young person, and that Martin had played the tuition, the school tuition. So that's that uh, person, that man could, as a young boy, could attend school. And that also, it's important to note that when the um, revolution happened in Cuba in 59, that Martin returned to Cuba, um, and his his goal was to help the Cuban people. His belief in the revolution was that it was going to end racism, to address the problem of race in Cuba, to address other issues that were uh, ongoing in Cuba in that era. That Martin de Igo was very much a committed socialist. He believed in that set of ideas, but he was not a communist. And yet he remained in Cuba because that was his land, that was his people, and he was committed to the people of Cuba. And that uh, Hiberto has also written another book because while people know about Martin Diego, Hiberto also wants people to understand that in this book, Estrella por Siempre, Forever Stars, um, he has the stories of 40 other players from the era that Martin Diego played so that the youth, the young fans of the game, fans of the game in, uh, in general, know these players and understand the path that they created of opportunity for other players who would follow them. Well, this was wonderful to talk to you and to learn about Martin. And I will link to Adrian's books and I will link to Gilberto's books for anyone who wants more information. And you can find Gilberto on Twitter at GDHigo. You can also find Adrian on Twitter at A.D. Burgos Jr. Thank you so much, uh, Gilberto. Muchas gracias. Fue un placer hablar contigo. También me puede encontrar en YouTube en Fórmula de Higo, donde sale el programa Martín de Higo, eh, su fundación. En el canal Fórmula de Higo. So you can also find him on YouTube on the channel Fórmula de Higo. And that they're uh, talking also about the uh, foundation Martin Diego. And so, you know, he's all over social media. So you can, yes. you can get to know more about Martin Diego and his impact uh, across baseball. And Adrian, thank you very much for sharing your knowledge and also for translating, which I know is not easy. It must have been a, a test of your note taking and short term memory. So thank you. Uh, thank you for having me on. I thank you very much, much. I'm sorry for my my poor English because I I, I talk for my father. It's necessary for me. It speaks uh, good for the audiencia. Uh, listen is uh, very important for Martin Diego for the baseball. Not only in Cuba, see, only in the uh, America. Yes, thank you. Okay, thank you both. Appreciate it. Un placer. Thank you, Ben and Alberto. Un placer. Thank you. All right, that will do it for today. Thanks for listening. Hope you enjoyed the interview. Thanks for bearing with the unusual format. I know it takes longer to have it in two languages, but it felt like the right way to do justice to the Eagles' legacy and to respect Gilberto's time and also make the conversation accessible to Spanish speakers who may not speak English. And on Monday night, Shohei Otani, who went three for five, hit a Dihigo-esque double, 119 miles per hour. That is the hardest hit ball since Giancarlo Stanton hit a home run 
harder last July, and Otani is now one of five players who have hit a ball that hard in a major league game that was tracked by StatCast, the Yankees trio of Stanton, Aaron Judge, and Gary Sanchez, and Nelson Cruz, and now Otani. And the new ball does seem to have goosed exit speed slightly, but that ball was crushed, so Diego would have approved. Maybe in the future we can do segments on the other Negro League's two-way greats. I actually took a nap a little bit before that interview, and I had a nightmare that I slept too long and I missed it. Just a glimpse into the podcaster psyche there. I was quite relieved to wake up and discover that I still had time to talk to Hilberto and Adrian. You still have time to support Effectively Wild on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectivelywild. The following five listeners have already signed up and pledged some small monthly amount to help keep the podcast going and get themselves access to some perks. Rob Fibbs, Jason George, Sean Hogan, Greg Powell, and Michael Stevens. Thanks to all of you. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash Effectively Wild. You can rate, review, and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes and Spotify and other podcast platforms. Keep your questions and comments for me and Meg coming via email at podcast at or via the Patreon messaging system if you are a supporter. We intend to get to emails next time. Thanks to Dylan Higgins, as always, for his editing assistance. And we will be back with another episode a little later this week. Talk to you then. Can't you feel it's your hometown hero's home, baby? Almost tasted whole town's amazing through your man his own parade. You crack one face at a pirate's game. They don't care who you are, they just put you away. Can't you feel it? That hometown spirit is home, babe. Hey.